At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to SOGCAST number 25, brought to you courtesy of Jocko Willing Productions. And as always, we thank Jocko and his team for making this possible. This is done in conjunction with SOG Chronicles. This is a segment from, will be a part of my next book that we're in the process of working on now, book four. And this begins uh, on August the 23rd, 1968, when FOB4 was attacked by a well-orchestrated sapper attack with NVA Viacon sappers that hit the base at Da Nang, FOB4. And this is one personal experience that we'll get into a little more detail on as we go. When the attack occurred, it was after midnight, and most of the people were back in bed. And in this case, the individual we're talking about was asleep, soundly asleep. He was awoken by an explosion, and... He had everything ready to go, so he jumped up, and he was the first one to clear the door. And this is his story that will be a part of the next book. He said, I exited the, the hooch. I hesitated for half a second. Then I saw a muzzle flash. He fired a blast of full automatic. The first round hit me in the stomach, entering on the right side, exiting on the left. The force of impact spun me around, and I fell with my head about a foot from the bottom step of the hooch. As he continued to fire, it moved to his left and hit Crab, who was also in that hooch, knocking him back into the hooch. As Crab fell back into the hooch, he knocked Jeff back into the hooch. My first reaction was, I was pissed. (laughs) My immediate thought was I had been shot by one of our own guys. I was really pissed. My first action was to get up and yell at him, You son of a bitch, I'm an American. His reaction was he shot me again. (laughs) This time, he shot me in the arm. I went down again. Now I'm really pissed. I'm going to shoot this bastard. I don't care if he is friendly So I start to get up again, and the same result. He shoots me again. This time, he hits me just under the shoulder blade. So I try to get up again. He hits me in the back of the head, down on the sand again. One more time, I'm going to get up and shoot this bastard. One more time, he fires. This time, in the back of the neck. Finally, I get the message. He knows who you are, and he's still trying to kill you. 
So I finally came to the obvious conclusion. If you stop trying to get up, maybe he'll stop killing you. <laughs> this is one of his unbelievable scenes. Anyways, um, so while lying face down, the NVA sapper walked over and stood over me with one foot on each side of my head. Although I couldn't see him, I knew he had the muzzle pointed directly at my head for the kill shot. At that time, I came to one of the most memorable moments in my life. It is so hard to explain and or understand. But every person who has been there will understand completely. At that moment, looking at his bare foot, I said to myself, so this is what it's like to die. At the same moment, I in my mind, I saw the final scene of In Cold Blood with Perry's final heartbeat. Thump, 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 silence. I had absolutely no pain. I was totally amazed at the calm that settled over me. So today it's my pleasure to introduce the man at that moment, probably the only man I know who's been shot five times, let alone being shot during the historic night of August 23rd, 1968, when we lost 16 Green Berets in that sapper attack at the top secret SOG base in Da Nang. It's my pleasure to introduce Travis Mills. Travis, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. Glad to be here. <laughs> I'm glad to be here any day. <laughs> and, and that night, um, we've had uh, Larry Trimble and uh, uh, Pat Watkins, who were also survived that night. Yes. But no one had your perspective. Um, so uh, uh, just for a quick background, at that time, FOB4, they had brought the headquarters element of command and control, which had been at the air base. They brought that into FOB4. That same day previous, which was August 22nd, they had a promotion board. Yes. And they also had a meeting of the six FOB commanders because they had had an, uh, a monthly meeting of the commanders to get together, compare notes, blah, blah, blah. So all those personnel were there. There's extra people the Viet Cong NVA had a year to plan that attack. And so in your case, uh, you had a routine day of training, and you were on which team then? Uh, I was on uh, Team Coral. Coral? Team, team 5, Team Coral at the time, yes. Right, and you were, and you also, uh, was that with uh, Ron Podlasky was your 1-1? That's, that's correct. <laughs> yes, we, we get back to Ron a little later. We used to call him Polish Pride, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but in your case, you trained up, you had a routine day, and oddly, that movie played that night at FOB4 on the night of August 22nd. You that's, watched it. That's correct. So it's etched in your memory, and so... Then in the morning of the 23rd, a few hours, again, the, when the exact attack started, it's not clear, but it was a night with no moon, right. no moon showing. After midnight, you had gone to bed, you were asleep, you had your clothes ready to jump in, you had your car 15 ready to roll. The first thing you hear is this large explosion. 
they began throwing satchel charges into the hooches, killing the Americans and indigenous troops. You heard that. You jumped up. As you're running out the door, you pause for that momentary second, and your first shot goes across your stomach. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's just, that whole scene is just amazing to me. And that's why it's been one of the more compelling stories. Uh, we missed it the first time when I did it on the ground, but we got to come back and, of course, get it for Sawcast here. And, you know, the thing that amazes me, there's so many things that happened after that. But first, your hooch, wh- where was it in terms of recon company? At that time, uh, the eastern perimeter had three rows of hooches that were recon, and then further south from that were some indigenous barracks. And the barracks you're in was unique because you had officers, some were hatchet force, some like yourself that were transitioning, correct? That's correct. Yes. Uh, we were in the very southeastern corner. We were the very southeast corner hooch right. there. And there were six of us in that hooch. Uh, there were two of us that were transitioning over to uh, Recon Company, and the others were part of the Hatchet Force. And that's where I had been because I had been on the Hatchet Force before and Second Company. And Second Company was primarily manned, other than like two of us Americans, they were all from uh, Okinawa, TDY. So oh, when they right? went back to Okinawa, that teams. only left two of us and plus – so they started integrating, and I and that that's when I came in to uh, Recon Company, and I originally started on Team Python, and then they went through the reorganization, and we went from eighteen teams down to twelve teams, and I, I Python was uh, was stood down, and I was assigned as the one one on uh, Team Coral because Hatcher the one zero was going to rotate in like six weeks and then I was gonna I was going over to get prime they gave you to take to over the one tr- take over as the one zero yes sir and uh, and he had just left I'd only been to one zero about a week uh, and they gave us time to train up and as a matter of fact we were supposed to get our first mission briefing the next day. Wow. So we were <laughs> we were getting trained up, getting ready to go, and sure. all that kind of stuff. And so uh, we went to bed that night, fully excited that okay, tomorrow morning we're going to get our our first uh, mission briefing and that get a chance thing. to and, get on the ground and get the on the ground and do all <laughs> those kind of things. And then, uh, like you say, somewhere for some reason like you say there's all kinds of different people that say well it started at midnight others say it started then in my own mind i distinctly remember that when that first explosion went off which is a they threw a satchel charge in the hooch next to us and it blew the sides out the roof collapsed and it killed everybody inside uh and up until that time, we had heard no small arms, so we thought we were being mortared. Which right, we got okay. every once in a while, and that's why you know I come blasting out the back door, and as I come out the back door, then out of the corner of my eye, I saw him standing over there. But we had five hundred indigenous in the camp, you sure. know, the the for the mount for the mic forces and all that kind of stuff. So I just thought he was one of our guys going to his. Uh, going to his defensive position just like we were 
And then, like I say, I hesitated for a half a second, and that's when I saw the muzzle flash. And then the, the whole burst. things all changed after that. That's why, like I say, it really aggravated me uh, <laughs> because I thought I'd been shot by your own guy. And the, it, the idiotic things you think about, you can't sit around in a club and talk about being shot by your own guy. You know, so I'm really pissed. And that's why I jumped up and said, you son of a bitch, I'm an American. Well, apparently he already knew that. So he says, okay. And so he gave me another round. <laughs> oh, my so God. I'm a slow learner, but once I get it, I got it. So, uh, <laughs> And then in that first burst, after you get hit in the stomach, as, as he's firing the AK-47 rise, right. that's when he got it, crabbed then. Right. And it, that blew him back into the hooch because right. he was following you out. Right. And just for our audience, um, the hoochers were facing – the uh, front door faced to the west, the uh, back door faced to the east, to the, to chi- the uh, South China Sea, right. and, the, and the, the beach that was there. Right. So you went out the back door. Yes, that's where my facing, defensive position was. Right. And uh, so behind Crab, then you had also uh, Jeff Fulman. And uh, just to set up that scene a little bit, uh, because Crab was, was seriously wounded, his femoral artery had been hit, and he was bleeding profusely. Yes. After 30 seconds or a minute, now this is Lieutenant Bob Blatherwick. Yes. He's still a lieutenant at the time, right? Right. This guy is another one of our heroes. Uh-huh. Blatherwick came to the door. He was coming to get me without moving and trying to see, to use the best stage whisper I could. I told him, Bob, don't come out. <laughs> Bob stopped and hunkered down at the door. He said, What's up, Trav? And I said, he's right there on the corner waiting for you. Bob leaned out, looked to the south, and said, I don't see anything. I said, do you see a sandbag? About three sandbags up that's sticking out further than the other sandbags? (laughs) Bob leaned out the door and said, yeah. I said, shoot it. And Bob said, you want me to shoot a sandbag? This is part... I replied in a strong stage whisper, shoot the fucking sandbag. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So Bob leaned out the door, lined his M16 down the edge of the sandbags and fired a full burst. When he fired the burst, I got up, grabbed my car 15 and got back to the hooch. Later on, when I got back from the hospital, I was told he, the sapper, was found with a bullet hole between his forehead. <laughs> Apparently, he's looking right down the barrel when Bob squeezed the trigger. Oh, my God. And, of course, uh, I mean, th- this is like everything. time expands. Like oh, seconds absolutely. become minutes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so you get back in the hooch, then you see Crab with a femoral artery bleeding, and then they do first aid on him. And then Bob took him right over to the dispensary. Did he have a Jeep there? Or did they? Uh, no. Uh, initially, uh, after... Uh, Charlie Pfeiffer came in, and he took off, and we were uh, that hooch was taking rounds. We were getting all kinds of AK rounds and everything else, and somebody come up with a brilliant idea. We got to get out of this hooch, and so right out the back door, maybe ten or fifteen meters or so, was a four deuce mortar pit, and so we got out into the mortar pit and there were already a couple of uh, ncos that had got into the mortar pit and they'd started putting up illumination 
Right. So we got in there, and that's when I figured out my right hand didn't work. Where the, I shot but we got the, shot with AK. I got <laughs> hit with the arm, and it severed uh, some nerve damage, and I couldn't do that. So Jeff Fullen got over, and he was pulling charges on the alum rounds, giving them to me. I was using my left hand and handing them to the gunner, and he'd drop them down the tube. So we were doing that, and after a couple of minutes, uh, you know, Crab, they were still trying to work on Crab, get a tourniquet on him, get the bleeding stopped and yeah. that kind of stuff. And finally, uh, Blatherwick said, hey, we got to do something. And Blatherwick just come up out of the pit and took off up between the hooches. And so we just kept on, kept hunkered down, didn't know who was who and where rounds were coming from and everything else. And there were just little small pocket firefights going on all over the camp. And then like you say time compresses it could have been oh, it yeah. could have been three minutes it could have been an hour and a half i don't know yeah but it was probably somewhere around 15 minutes or so something like that that bob showed up in a jeep now where he found it i don't know <laughs> we didn't care but he showed up in the jeep so <clears throat> they loaded crab on the on the in the jeep yeah and bob and he took off for the dispensary and if you remember it was several hundred meters Oh, yeah. to the dispensary from where Recon Company was. A lot of exposed territory, too. Yeah. So he got there and uh, deposited crab and that kind of stuff. And when he left, uh, just as he was pulling off, he said, I'll, I'll be back to get you, Trav. And I said, <laughs> okay, Bob, I'll be here. So so anyway, we— Well, uh, also, I think that after you've been shot five times, everybody assessed that somehow you weren't going to die. You were bleeding a lot. <laughs> right. Well, and you well, didn't feel too good. You had some pain. You couldn't use your hand. Couldn't pick your nose too good. But while we were in the hooch, <laughs> before we got out in the mortar pit, and when yeah. I first got back in, you know, I'm laying on the floor, and uh, Jeff Fullen is there right beside me, and he's kind of trying to put some bandages on and that kind of stuff. And I remember asking him, I said, Jeff, did you ever eat any green apples? I said, my stomach hurts like hell. <laughs> Oh no, really? <laughs> and he says, "Yeah, I can I can pretty well understand that, you know." So, uh, that's when we finally decided, "Hey, we got to get out of here and get back in. Right. Get back inside." But also and they bandaged you up a little bit. They they bandaged once we got out into the mortar pit, they yeah. they put some bandages on the stomach and my arm and kind of got that. I wasn't bleeding very bad uh on the other We well, got wounds. shot in the neck. Right. It uh <laughs> and I'll kind of go into that uh, probably later. Uh, yeah. I can I can go into more a little bit that why they weren't bleeding quite so bad and, and that type of thing. But uh, yeah, we'll quote that doctor later on when you're on the <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, anyway, we're out and uh, and and we got out into the mortar pit in, into the mortar pit. Yeah, and then he took crab. Then he came back and he picked me up, and so I. They helped me out. I got in the jeep, and just before we started, uh, Bob turned to the mortar crew and he said, "Keep the illumination going up." He said, "It's the only way I can find my way around." And I shot the lights out of this thing of the jeep. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? So that? we took off through the camp, <laughs> and it was a really eerie, eerie sight. I can't imagine the. the they, the illumination was up, and uh, 
the flares, you know, how they swing oh, underneath yeah. the parachute. So you got these weird looking shadows that, that wave from side to side and all that kind of stuff. The little talk was been blown up and totally collapsed and it was all on fire. There was little firefights going on here and there. And had S4 Never, exploded yet? No, not yet. That, okay. The, that hadn't, uh, that, that one hadn't went up yet. Right. And so we finally made it up to the dispensary. Bob pulled up out front, and I got out, and uh, he said, see you later, Trav, and he <laughs> off into the darkness, and I think he wound up picking four or five people up that Several. night and getting them back up to the dispensary so they could get some. They, uh, we took a few rounds. They shot one of the windows, one of the windshields out. While you're but in we, route while we to the dispensary. But he didn't get hit, or I didn't get hit anymore, <laughs> and uh, so – we made it well bob uh bob was a real hero that night well I absolutely mean, i mean this is like even 20 or 30 years later when we first doing we we of course in sog we couldn't talk about it for 20 years mm-hmm. but afterwards soldier of fortune did a story and then we did our first book but there was always a question who were the people in the jeep there was more than one and mm-hmm. one another was a navy corpsman who came in mm-hmm. but bob was the first one would you critically ruin and save crab's life by getting them up there right. Yeah. Um, and so he's a, clearly one of our unsung heroes that night. But getting back to your story here, because at the hooch, the guys determine you're not going to die. So you get oh. into the dispensary. Oh, that was what I was going to tell you. Yeah. Uh, in the earlier part, when you know, I said I came to that absolute total revolution there laying on the ground and had absolutely no pain whatsoever. Wow. I mean, it was abs- I was extremely calm. It was I, I'm, I'm still amazed today when i think about that and then i got back in the hooch and they scurried around and all that kind of stuff and jeff he's he's over you're gonna be okay trav you're gonna live you're gonna be okay trav you're gonna live all right finally he convinced me that i was gonna live let me tell you what (laughs) pain kicked in big time once you decide you're gonna live (laughs) that's when i told him i told him my stomach hurts like hell (laughs) Oh my God! <laughs> but it, th- that's an amazing thing that happens. And, oh yeah, you know you. Uh, I, I still am am totally amazed that I had absolutely no pain whatsoever. That's that is amazing. So getting back to our storyline here, you go in again. You get triaged. They go, "Hey, you're not going to die right now." <laughs> so then they, uh, I forget who talked to you, but said, "Go back to the back door." The end of the dispensary, right? Yeah. The the kind of the chief medic there but well scully was the chief medic but he was the one they were working he was on. severely wounded he, he was yeah. severely wounded and and so they said look <laughs> i go back to this thing and not to make light of anything but i think the reason they put me back there guarding the back door if you remember the old 40s and 50 movies when right. the lady was having a baby yeah. they always had the husband boiling water <laughs> they didn't need no hot water or anything else they just needed to get him out of the way and give him <laughs> something to do so i think that was my book go boil some water go guard the back you're, door you're, yeah you're not going <laughs> to die now so go guard the back door and you had a what, your nine millimeter I had that with nine you? millimeter that, that I the did. captain pfeiffer right. had given you okay yeah. and so uh, and I just because mean, they I had some people really hurt bad. Oh, yeah. absolutely. And here, I think uh, I got to say in Sawcast number twenty-three, um, Pat Watkins talked about bringing Scully into the dispensary, mm-hmm. and when he did, 
he talks about seeing a guy guarding the back door. He's all bloodied up. And it was you. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, so you're there for how long? And then at some point, they decide that they got their, their medical staff is overwhelmed. They got to get some bodies down to MCAS, Marine Corps Air Station. Well, they actually have to take it down to the Navy Hospital, which is right past MCAS. Okay. And that's, that would be north on Highway 1. Right. You go out of the base, go, you go to the west. Go up and go past uh, Ch- uh, Charlie 1. Charlie 1, you, go past the NVA POW camp that yeah, was next door. Right. And then you have to go past uh, MCAS, and then you get to the hospital before you get to the bridge going across over right. in okay. his name. And uh, they were, while I was back there, I could overhear them, and they are working furiously over Scully. Oh, yeah. And uh, – Somebody, the chief up there, said, if we don't get him to the hospital, there's no, he don't have a chance. It's too hot. We can't get helicopters in. So we, what what can we do? And, and, and Scully some, had a, a head injury he from a wound. right in the back of the base of the skull. Right, yeah. right in the back of the skull. And uh, <clears throat> so somebody said, well, you know, we got this old Cracker Box ambulance out here, like the one that was in MASH, you know. Right, yeah, from World War II. From World War II, an old Cracker Box. Or World War One, maybe. <laughs> and uh, and they said, you know, we can load him up on that. And and everybody said, well, you know, the road's closed and everything else. Said, we got no other choice other than to just lay here and watch him die. And so uh, one of the young medics volunteered to drive it, and they took the three most uh, severely wounded. Yeah. And they come over to me and they said, we need somebody to ride shotgun. Can you ride shotgun? I said, let's go. You know, let's get it. So they loaded everybody up and we got in. I got in and we go off and get down to the front gate. And when I got in, I gave the driver the nine millimeter. I took his M16. Right. Because I can do that better out the window. And he's only got one hand anyway, so sure. he can shoot with one hand. And so we got down to the gate. And if you remember, you come down and you make that right turn, turn coming right out of the gate. Yeah. And we hesitated just as they was trying to get all of the barricades open for the gate so we could get out. And the young sergeant turned to me and he looked. He said, I sure hope they don't want to waste a real good ambush on a ragged ass <laughs> old Jeep. <laughs> and I said, well, me too. So let's do it. And that's, like I said in my little paper that I wrote there, that, you know, I don't know what his uh, early childhood was or what his profession was before he came in the Army and became a medic. But I guarantee you, he would have made NASCAR proud because he went down that road. I All never knew an old Jeep that could run that fast. <laughs> and then as the biggest concern, we we took some rounds, but nobody got hit. And as we're barreling down the road, our next thing was at MCS every night, they closed the road. They right. totally barricaded the road, had 50 calibers up there, all that kind 50 of 50 calibers, huh? Yeah. They uh, they were ready for bear every night when that when the road got closed. And so we're barreling down the road in the middle of the night. There's flares everywhere. There's firefights going on everywhere. And I said, we're going to get shot for sure again if we don't do something. So the, we got about probably 200, maybe 300 yards out, something like that. 
and he started flashing the lights. I hung out the window just as far as I could and yelled just as loud as I could, started yelling, Americans, Americans, Americans. Well, I guess it worked because they didn't shoot. Fortunately, the Marines heard you. <laughs> yeah. And so we we come sliding in. They opened the gate after you know 10 seconds of seeing what was going on and everything. And then we went on rather uh, – unceremoniously on down to the hospital it was pretty easy ride from there on out yeah but But also like you just went over another point other bases other operations were also being attacked yes and just north right next to fob4 was an nva pow camp that's correct where we had 500 800 depends the numbers fluctuate Mm -hmm. depending on who you're talking to but part of the plan was to for the NVA and the sappers was to cut through the barbed wire, get into that camp to free them so those NVA POWs could join in the battle to take over at FOB4. Right. And one of the people who uh, helped us thwart that was Jeff. Yes. And apparently Jeff had come back and was able to get a gunship and directed the gunship gunfire on the NVA or in the wire trying to get through to the POW camp. And so the Jeff's story is another one of those heroic moments that right. he literally saved the day there because if the NVA had added 400 men to that battle, eh, night would have been a little bit longer. been a little bit different. That's exactly right. Indeed. So you get to the hospital, you, you're able to drop off Scully and the other two, and they again, they look at you and say, oh, you're not dying now, so have a seat. <laughs> no, they put me on a sawhorse stretcher. You know, out here in the oh, okay. middle of nowhere. You know, and there was a bunch of us out there, not just oh, me. Yeah. There was uh, there were a bunch of us. So I was one that I'm not extremely critical. They've got yeah, the bleeding under shot five times, and, but yeah, and that kind of stuff. And uh, so you got to wait. Okay, <laughs> nobody nobody's trying to kill me right now, so Indeed. I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> so then, uh, uh, just to, I like to continue through a little bit of your story from there and then come back on the night and then get into other things you've done because uh, it's part of your character that makes your whole story so unique. <laughs> uh, you know, all of our guys have unique stories, but yours is right up near the top, Travis. <laughs> so I, I spent, again, I don't know how long it was, but it was starting to get well after daylight. Uh, and I was still the wounded the medevac ships were still coming in bringing guys in from other other places right. and everything else so they came around to me and they said we got too many people coming in here we don't know when we're ever going to be able to get to you so we're going to move you and some other guys up to monkey mountain up to the hospital up on monkey mountain okay so they load us on a helicopter and we flew up to monkey mountain went through the triads again on the stretchers again and waited there <laughs> for again quite some time before they finally uh come around and it became my turn uh to go into the or and then uh the next thing i really remember was waking up in the recovery area all bandaged up my arm tied down all that kind of stuff and everything and I was there in the recovery ward, and again, uh, one of the most profound moments in my life happened right there in that recovery area is I was 
just coming out of the medication enough to kind of have a few semi-sane thoughts and that right. type thing and started the old why me you know why did i have to get shot what did i do all that kind of stuff and really getting up into the you know poor pitiful me yeah, type yeah. thing and they wheeled a young marine out of the uh or and yeah. put him up and he was coming out from under the uh anesthesia and when you come out from under the anesthesia you do all kinds of weird stuff you yell you kick you know call people names do all kinds of bad stuff and everything else <laughs> and uh so this young kid he, he was probably about 19 years old and in in the gyrations that he was doing he kicked his sheet off and of course when you come out of the or that's all you got the bloody surgical sheet covering you up right and uh when he did i looked over and his left leg was gone just below the knee his right leg was gone just above the knee his left arm was gone uh right at the elbow and he had one arm left <clears throat> and he had many many other bandages all over the his body and uh, i looked over at him and saw that and i kind of looked at myself and at that exact moment i heard my grandmother's voice just as plain as if she was standing right at the foot of the bed <laughs> and she says i used to complain because i had no shoes until I met a man that had no feet. Amen. And then I heard her say, you got no complaints. Get over it. <laughs> Grandma and spoke I'm, to you. And, yes, sir. And <laughs> at that moment, I mean, depression went away, everything else, the resolve came in. Hey, I'm the luckiest guy. I'm still breathing. I'm still alive. I got both hands and both legs. Hey, let's, let's, get on around about getting well indeed and 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 getting out of here and coming back and getting back in the game so i mean that moment really changed my whole perspective and whole life and then very shortly after that <laughs> this same bunch come around and says we're getting more people in we got no room for you we got to move you somewhere you know where am I going to go? Yeah. So they sent a helicopter came in. They loaded six or eight of us, and we went out to the USS Sanctuary, which is a hospital ship off the coast. Right. And that was my home for the next thirty-one days. Wow. Yeah, that's uh that was. I remember that always sitting out there. Right. Yeah. It, it we flew moved, over it. it Sometimes the king up, bees would go down and buzz it a little yeah, bit. You know, it moved up and down the coast and that type yeah. thing. And and. Uh, and so I spent my time out there, and the regulations were you spent 30 you, – the most you could spend on that ship was 30 days, 31 days. Right. And you either had to be medevac further back, like going to Japan or Guam or Midway or somewhere like that, or you had to went back to duty. <clears throat> so I wasn't interested in going further no. back. So I kept telling the doctor that I want to go back to camp and – the only my and we'll go into that more about my yeah. wounds and that type of thing but the main one that they were concerned about was my right hand because i had all the nerve damage i had no feeling in the hand very very limited i could use my thumb and forefinger and that was about it uh but i finally convinced the doctor that look 
he, he kept saying, you can't go back to duty. You're not duty qualified. You're not duty ready. And so finally I said, look, you don't understand. I'm an infantry officer, and my only requirement <laughs> is to fire a weapon. I got a thumb, and that finger works just fine. My trigger I'm, finger. I am qualified for duty. <laughs> and he said, you're the hard-headedest bastard I ever met. And he said, if you want to go back, then so be it. So he signed my release, and the next day we pulled into Nanang Harbor, and I got off uh, – Got a, and they gave me a set of Navy dungarees because, like I said, when I came on right. board, all I had was a blood, bloody surgical sheet. And uh, so I got on the dock, found a uh, uh, five-ton truck going down to MCAS. So I hitched a ride to there, got out, started walking down the road. Pretty soon another truck came by, stuck my thumb out. He picked me up, took me down to the, the gate at FOB4. And uh, – the gate guards weren't too sure, you know, the nun guard yeah, wasn't but really. Let's, let me just break you here for a second mm. because I want to go back. There's a few things. Uh, getting back to the actual morning of August 23rd, there were so many casualties from so many bases. You start out at FOB4, then you go up to the uh, Naval Hospital, and um, then over to Monkey Mountain, and then to the USS Sanctuary mm-hmm. because there's so many Americans wounded. That day. Right. And then also that doctor told you you're probably one of the luckiest son of a bitches he ever met, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and here I think this would be the appropriate time because you, when I think about it, you're coming down the steps. And when he opened fire, he had a sideways profile on you. That's right. And that first round that hits your stomach, explain that in better detail because that is still one of these incredible moments where – had that round been another, what, a centimeter or an millimeter to the right? Two or three millimeters. Yeah. And then, yeah, you're not here. Yeah. But he, uh, <laughs> please. It it <laughs> came in from the right side and, and exited the left. And as you said, he was on a, a side angle shot right. from me. And the surgeon told me later on that the bullet was, it. he was only about eight feet away. So the bullet was still stable and all that, and it you know still had the sharp point on it and all that kind yeah. of stuff, and it tore all the muscle tissue out. But the actual stomach lining itself, the surgeon said, it had a burn mark just like a rope burn, where it just went right across, but it never penetrated it. And he said, if it had a penetrated the stomach and all of that stuff. Uh, came out you'd have never survived the the blood loss and or all of the infection Infections. and everything else that would have went along with it he said that's the first thing <laughs> he said the first thing he said yeah uh he said you know the uh shot through the arm he said fortunately for you it's just a shot straight through no big deal only nerve damage is all you got see i but thought that mi- only happened on television <laughs> but you have a real flesh wound that enters the flesh on one side and, and came, came out, out the, the other. other it did not hit the bone that's right it missed God. the bone by two millimeters <laughs> and he said if it, it would have hit the bone it would have totally blown up as close as he was and everything yeah. it would have blown the arm off you'd have probably never survived that you'd have bled out because of that uh, wow. And then the one, uh, because I was on the ground, I was on my hands and knees trying to get up when he shot me in a shoulder blade. <laughs> and if you have ever fired a high-powered rifle, they always come out high. 
You know, it comes out of the barrel high right off the bat. And when you've got those high point uh, sights, you're, you're always aiming high. So the first round would come out high, and, it, and he was pointing it straight at me. So it would rise just a little, and it would just barely hit me. He almost missed me. It just <laughs> it was just a very like a grazing shot. And then he wasn't strong enough to hold it down, so the next two rounds would go up it as, rose it, on as it would climb on him. Yeah. <clears throat> Same way with the one in the neck and the one in the back of the head. They, <laughs> they were just except the one in the neck <laughs> missed my spinal cord by four millimeters. Is that right? Yeah. So this is what they're telling me at, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. a week later when I'm out here on this hospital ship that, you you know, you, you ought to be in Las Vegas laying down a $1,000 bed on, you know. <laughs> but you're <laughs> you like, yelled, you know, the luck you got. Uh, so I was absolutely. And then the head wound, what was the, then the last shot was the head wound, right? Yeah, and it, it just barely zinged across there. I just got a little bit of scar where the hair don't grow no more, and that's about it on that. <laughs> Again, same thing. He was just so close. And, you know, got a little, you know, buck fever there and shooting real quick and not aiming very good and that type of thing. So, and, you know, as we get on in life and we get more philosophical and and think about life in general and all of that, you have to wonder, you know, was I just lucky or, (laughs) and it was just happenstance and that type. Or was there some divine intervention in there? You know, could you be that lucky that many times in such a short period? You yeah. know, you have to start and think about the philosophy of life and what life <laughs> is all about. And and, and what as grandma, I your explain case, what later, grandma would have said, <laughs> explain later on and uh, the thing where I go down and and I'm complaining because I'm having to be an instructor now and I can't go out and run teams anymore. And I get uh, the the real big speech speech from Colonel Johnson that uh, you know you're here for a reason. You've got the experience, you got the skills. We got new guys coming in, and you and these other instructors' job is to make sure they survive the first two or three missions. So Give before the- we get to Colonel Johnson and where he told you that, <laughs> I want to back the tape up a little. Yeah. So where you were when you came back to uh, to uh, uh, FOB4, mm-hmm. and by that time, you're hooch. There's all new people. Right. Was it passed up a little bit? It still have all the bullet it holes. It still had bullet holes yeah. in it. Now they all still had... <laughs> Still had blood on the floor, you know. I mean, you could still. Oh, yeah. They had cleaned it as good as they could, but they still had bullet holes. And as a matter of fact, uh, you know, I found out long, long, many years later, Gene Pugh was the one that one of the team guys sure. that moved in. And he and I met many years later at a SFA meeting and that type of thing. Right. And we were saying, Oh, you were at FOB4. Yeah, I was at FOB4. Well, where did you live? And I said, You know, I lived in this hooch. He says, no, I lived in that hooch. That's not it. I lived in that hooch. Uh, he was the one that moved in behind me. And so we finally figured that out. And I said, oh, so you moved in after we got medevaced out. And he said, yeah, well, I'll tell you one thing. You left it in a hell of a mess. <laughs> well, you know, you talk about talk about blood on the floor. When the Frenchman, Doug Letourneau, came in through FOB4 before getting shipped up to uh, FOB1, mm-hmm. 
he got his his in country briefing there for CNC for SOG, mm-hmm. and they put him over in the transit barracks. And the thing that woke him up, that welcomed him to the secret war, was the image in the floor and the transit billet, which was a burnt body. The burn mark was still on the floor from mm-hmm. where that body had burnt. It's like welcome to the secret war. So it's like. That and your blood on the floor, is, that's the gruesome reminders of August 23rd that uh, right. continue to haunt for many months. So, okay, so you get back, you're there, uh, you've been away 31 days, and they say to you, you can't go to the field right now. What's right. the next option? My next option is I went to work with Major Toomey <clears throat> up in the S3 shop. Major Toomey? Major Toomey. Oh, yeah. sure. Yeah. And Highly respected. Yeah. I was uh, working with him as the assistant S3 and helping the launch officers and, you know, doing, helping getting the briefing package together and all that stuff. <clears throat> and then uh, one day, I, I don't know, a couple of weeks or so after I got back, he called me in his office and he said, we just got a levy from Saigon that they need a one a one zero qualified officer to go down to a camp down by Saigon and uh, run a one zero school, run a training school for for new team leaders. And I said, Hey, I don't want to be a trainer. I you know I want to get back on my team. And they said, I know you do, but look, you go off down there, do a couple of cycles, give you time to heal up. You'll be okay. Then you can come back and you can have your team back. So reluctantly. Yeah. And like I had a choice, I said, yeah, okay, I'll go. <laughs> well, Major Toomey was one of our heroes from the Tet Offensive when uh, Lang Vega got overrun. Mm-hmm. And he led a relief force from FOB3 up at Quezon right. and went back to Lang Vega right. and to help the, to relieve the siege there, just stud of an officer, just right. outstanding that, man. That, another one of those things is, and, and you know this story as well, uh, you know, about uh, – Major Toomey, yeah. Had had I not been, when you talk about divine intervention, uh, had I not been sent to Longton, I would have been on that helicopter with him doing that insert when they got blown out of the sky. Well, he got he was um, was he on the chopper doing an insert, or was it on the uh, U seventeen coming back with ordnance that no. blew up and crashed? No, he he was going in, I believe, okay. on it when they when they hit it. Right. So we're talking about November thirtieth, nineteen sixty eight. We had a King B, a South Vietnamese mm-hmm. Air Force H thirty four, that was going on a mission across the fence into Laos, a mission called an Eldest Son. Right. Where we would go in, put in enemy ordnance, right, AK forty seven rounds, eighty two millimeter mortar rounds, right. and they would be doctored so that when the enemy soldiers used it, it would explode and kill them. Right. And on that helicopter, there were seven Green Berets, including the Major, mm-hmm. and they were hit by anti-aircraft fire en route. They spiraled right. down. All six were lost, and they didn't recover their bodies until 25 years later. Right. But they are today buried along with the helicopter crew at Arlington. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, and uh, but you know the yeah, but the by guy, the grace that, of God, the guy that took my place was on that helicopter. Yeah. Oh so, my God. You know, I mean you. You think about those things later on in life and wonder, you know, what is my mission in life? Why am I still here? Indeed. So you, it, it kind of puts a little bit of a, a burden on you that, you know, I have to do a little bit better every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, um, before we get you going to Longton and walking through the gate and meeting Colonel Johnson, um, could we just flash back to how did all your military career begin? 
and just maybe kind of go through it uh, step by step from Texas um, and then how you decide on OCS and things like that, your prior service before getting into OCS and staff sergeant. Uh, I mean, um, special forces. Well, I was number one on the draft list. and uh, (laughs) Which we had a draft back in the 60s. That's correct. But I was married at the time, so they were only taking – single guys and weren't taking and we didn't have any children and on a personal note you're still married to bobby that's right who to whom 59 years later 59 she's yes. still talking to you yes that, that's saying something okay i'm sorry go ahead <laughs> so uh so i was number one on the list and a very very good friend of mine went grew up went to school with his father was on the county draft board and so every month he would tell me we got enough single guys this month, so you don't have to worry and that type of thing. And then when right. we came up to this point, and he came to me and he says, "Well, it's time. We, we only got so many, <laughs> and you're number one on the list when we have to start going past the other ones." So, so what city? What county? What state? This was uh, in Salina, Texas, in Collin County, Texas. Okay, and which is just north of Dallas, about thirty-five or forty miles. <clears throat> And so with that up, I didn't want to just be a draftee because I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to get into special forces. So, so I, Bobby and I talked about it and I said, when the time comes, I'm going down to sign up. So I did. And so I went in, got processed and went off and went through basic training at Fort Polk. You know, (laughs) everybody that ever uh, went to Fort Polk. And then from Fort Polk, I went to Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and went through the basic uh, AIT AIT type stuff. And then I got assigned to a a training company there in uh, Fort Jackson, South Carolina. And it it was one for being just an old soldier out there in the army is the greatest job you could have i was probably just, what he wanted at uh, the time I, well i made i made two I'm, you made an e deuce okay i made two. Oh and man so, your career is rising uh, yeah, that's right <laughs> uh because i was part of this you know cadre sure and uh that type thing and my job was once they formed them up and uh First sergeant got the head count every morning. You know, they'd call me, Corporal Mills. And, you know, I'd come around. I'd turn around, march them off to the classroom and turn them over to the yeah. instructors. Once I, you know, all, everybody's here, all present accounted for. Here's the list of the students and all that. I was off till 10 <laughs> minutes till noon where I had to pick them up, march them in, put them through the mess hall, get them formed up again, get the head count, and then the First sergeant, turn them back over to me. I march them back, turn them back over to the school again, pick them up at 5 o'clock, take them back to the barracks, and turn them over to their their uh, drill sergeants. My day was over. <laughs> I did CQ <laughs> twice a week, and uh, and that was it. You know, and well, I'd, two times a week, weekdays, and every other weekend, I had to pull CQ. So wow. I mean, you're talking about a good job. Now, that That's was a, a good job. job. And CQ is night guard duty. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you're in charge. Yeah, right. So, uh, but every payday, because when I came in the Army, I was fortunate, and I picked a lot of the right answers on the entrance exam, so I had a, a very credible score. <clears throat> so uh, my company commander would give me the speech every at every payday. 
you know, I, we really need somebody to go to OCS. We need to go to OCS. Well, I wasn't real sure I wanted to be an officer. <laughs> and I wasn't real sure I was going to stay that long anyway. So, right. But in one of the conversations, I was talking to my dad. My dad was a uh, seaman third class uh, in the South Pacific in World War II. And so I was telling him, that, you know, boy, this company commander, this captain, he's on me every month about wanting to go to OCS or whatever. And uh, my dad said, well, son, let me tell you. I don't know how it works in the Army, but I'll tell you one thing. In the Navy, officers live a whole lot better than all us guys down below deck did. <laughs> he said, if you get a shot at going to OCS, I think you ought to take it. So next, the next payday, I made my company commander very, very happy. <laughs> <laughs> I said, okay, I'm ready to go to OCS. So I filled out the paperwork. Three days later, I was on the bus heading to Fort Benning, Georgia. Wow. <laughs> and went through infantry OCS. And uh, fortunately, uh, soldiering came pretty natural to me. Uh, I, I was always one that would accept being in charge and didn't mind being in charge. And then what year was this? Uh, this was 1967 Seven, okay. when when I went to OCS. And yes, then, sir. And so – and academically, I was, uh, I was a good student academically. And so – I never had that problem. Good, good fortune <laughs> shined on me, and I Indeed. graduated number one in my class. Really? I graduated honored and distinguished graduate oh, uh, wow. from my OCS class. Yeah. And so by doing that, I got to choose my assignment. Oh, and I chose Special Forces, and believe it or not, they gave it to me. So <laughs> that's rare. I, I went. Th- th- that's exactly right. I went from uh, immediately to jump school. Oh, now wow. I-, I will tell you another story, please. Uh, <laughs> when we were just getting ready to turn senior candidate, we were had been out to the company in the attack live fire exercise. And we were on our way back home, uh, back to the main post. And this exercise was way out in the firing range. It must have been 20 miles out there. And the whole uh, OCS company, we had about 126 guys. No, we had 226 guys. So we had like six or seven two-and-a-half-ton trucks full of troops. We were coming back down those old red dust roads in, in Fort Benning, and the guy driving our truck was the fourth one in a column of seven trucks. And he got behind, and then he started trying to catch up. And they had a bridge washed out uh, on one of the creeks out on the way back, and they had put in one of those LV, LBLV bridges. Oh, yeah. You know, and so the trucks had to slow down because it's really narrow. And so the trucks up front were slowing down, and just as the truck in front of us was just getting his front wheels up on the top of the bri- on the bridge. Yeah, our driver come busting out of the dust at about sixty miles an hour. Oh, he hit that truck in the back end. It went off the bridge this way. We ricocheted off of that, and we hit the uh, anchor. We the abutment of the bridge, and the truck stood right up on its nose and fell upside down in the creek. And this uh, is before seatbelts. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, we're all in the back. Yeah. And uh, without with a canvas, you know, that canvas top on that yeah. two and a half ton truck, and it come right down on top of us. Ooh. The only thing that kept from killing us was there. 
water in the creek was just about chest high. So that cushioned the actual impact when we went in. We didn't get anybody killed, but really? we got lots of broken legs and arms and all that kind of stuff. I got I broke my pelvis in two places. Two places? Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, and while I was, I, I, you know, everything happened, bang, 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 and all that kind of stuff, and then it's dark, and I'm wet, and what's going on, and I look up, and I see daylight. So, I start going to daylight. Well, when I broke out of the water, the canvas on that thing had ripped, and that's what I could see was that hole, yeah, yeah. the sunlight through that hole. So I was up there, and I tore that out, and I helped. we helped some other guys, and we all got out. Uh, one of the guys, I think his name was Maxwell, had broken his neck, and, and he was just almost like this in the water. And so I got him and, and held his head up out of the water and got him over to the side of the bank. And you're doing all this with a broken hip? Yes. And no pain yet, or not yet. You hadn't got to your pain stage. I hadn't okay. got to the pain stage yet. So <laughs> as long as I was in the water and buoyant, <laughs> yeah, I, I was okay. And so we got him over. I got him over to the uh, edge. Yeah, and I reached down to get him on the shoulders to lift him up out of the water so I could lay him up on the thing because he was pretty much unconscious and yeah, yeah, and just like this. And uh, when I reached down, not in the water. And I picked him up, pain. No. <laughs> I didn't walk for a long time after that. I went down. And, there were, and oh my God. Uh, it just so happened there was a uh, tank crew out, do, out at one of the tank ranges doing some training, and they were on the way back. And we had an SF, uh, SFC that was in our uh, class. Mm-hmm. Uh, he died a few years ago. And... Uh, he flagged down those tanks, got on the radio, and got a hold of post headquarters or range control or right. whatever it was and said, you know, we need medevac out here right now. They sent out uh, two Chinooks. He got the tanks, knocked down enough of the trees where the two Chinooks could land on the road. Right, okay. And they loaded us in and took us into the hospital. Yeah, because in that class, you were the third oldest, and you and the two other older men were SFC, Green Berets, that were going to become officers. Right. Wow. So so I got in the hospital, and I'm there, and they're working over me and that type of stuff. And and, uh, the young orthopedic surgeon, he was a young captain, uh, boy, I mean, he wanted to do immediate surgery right now. We want to go in there and put pins in this thing and fix it up and all that stuff. And as you well know, when you're going through OCS or any of the other training courses, you're in absolutely top physical shape. Sure. I mean, you are just 1% body fat. I mean, that, <laughs> you're ready to you, roll. You're ready to go. <laughs> and so there was a full colonel who was chief of the orthopedic department. He's looking at the x-rays and all that kind of stuff. And he said, if you operate on this boy and he he won't walk for a long time because you're going to do all kinds of stuff. He said, his bone, his muscles are strong enough that it held that pelvic bone. It's less than a 30-second of an inch out of alignment. And you can't do no better if you go in there and try to pin it up. So why go through all of that? 
He just lays in this bed and lets that start to knit back together, and his muscles will hold it there and hold it in place. And that's and that guy saved me because I didn't Whoa. go through the surgery. Whoa. <laughs> 21 days later, I walked out of that hospital. You walked out? Yep. I walked out. I went back to OCS <laughs> and finished. <laughs> And how did you graduate in the class? Were you near the top in that class, too? I was too? number even though one. You're I was number, number one, one graduate. In, oh, my God. Now, even though you're AWOL for 21 days well, in the dispensary. But, well, there are, <laughs> I kind of made history on that, too. Oh, is that uh, right? <clears throat> because when I got back, mm-hmm. the student brigade had decided, at first, they all said, you guys get well, not a problem. You'll graduate. You know, yeah. wasn't your fault, all that kind of stuff. And then... But later on, they had all kind. Of, the academia got involved Indeed. and said, "No, no, no, you can't do that." And so, I became what's called a turnback. They sent me back to another class, uh, so I could go through sure. and get that whole training. Well, under the current rules, a turnback was not el- eligible for any of the high awards because you were considered right. to had a double chance. You had taken these exams sure. before, so you had a chance of knowing having a better score than the person that had went through the first time. So, <laughs> But my company commander from my old company yeah. and the battalion commander went to the student brigade and pleaded my case because the day I went to the other company – they were coming back from the same exercise that I got hurt on. Oh, wow. So technically, yeah. I did not go through any training twice. <laughs> I, I went through it. was just like I had been with them. And so it got down the day before graduation. Yeah. They finally made a decision that says my grades would count. Wow. No as, as stood. Yeah. And uh, and then I got I was awarded the uh, uh, number one position. Wow! Otherwise, I would have got nothing. So, again, providence stepped in again on that and allowed me to be able to get sure. my selection to, so to then come to from, special forces. From there, you go to uh, special forces training as an officer. The officer training, which right. was how long? Uh, well, I was in seventh group uh, for a year, and. We did some just normal team training, right. and then I went through the SFOC course, and I can't remember how long that was. Seems like that was about eight or nine weeks. Uh, right. It was a it was a pretty long course, sure, uh, and uh, not near as long as some of the the Q courses were. Well, like the medics, they are over a year, right? <laughs> and uh, but ours was was mainly we had to do a little bit of the things of all of the different MOSs, you know, right. whether it would be commo and demo and that kind of stuff. And then but mainly our indoctrination was kind of like what the O and I sergeants get. Uh studying uh communist theory, uh studying all of the stuff about how you fit into the community, how you organize a guerrilla band right. uh, and all that kind of stuff. It was more in, into the leadership thing, and it was pretty intense for that period of time. Sure, but uh, because '67 early and '68, that was the year we, we had the biggest buildup of our military. We had the Tet Offensive, right? 
That was also the year we had the most casualties in the Vietnam War. Right. And so, and then I was actually in uh, on a team in uh, Delta Company of the 7th and went on all the exercises and all those kind of things and got the training. And also, as I moved up there for a while, I had to be the S4, you know, which at the time I hated. Everybody didn't like to be a staff officer. <laughs> right. Uh, but it was a great learning experience. It, it really came in handy many years later when I was at the one zero school and that kind of stuff, right. knowing how the logistical system works, how you can actually oh, yeah. circumvent the, the, the regulations <laughs> and get what you really need. Get things done. <laughs> and that kind of thing. So all in all, it wound up being uh, a, a quite a fortunate thing that I got to be an S4 for a while. Sure. So you get S4 and you wind up in Vietnam. You go through the uh, – where did he delineate going into C&C? Because wasn't there a little story that ties in with that? Because ordinarily an officer would first would be going to an A camp unless – they well, did they ask for volunteers how did you get no, into sog from there uh, as, as a matter of fact one of the things that uh that group started doing was seventh group or fifth uh all the entire oh okay group, the, right the entire the regiment uh, uh group what it started doing was holding all of the lieutenants at fort bragg for one year before sending them to vietnam until they made first lieutenant because if you went to vietnam as a second lieutenant <coughs> you hit the ground at Tonsonwood air base if the fourth division just got the dickens kicked out of it and needed lieutenants they had the right to override your uh, orders right and you wound up in you know fourth infantry division or ninth oh. infantry division or whatever the oh, case yeah. but as a first lieutenant they didn't need that many they needed a bunch of second lieutenants. They, they sent them out in the field. They didn't, they didn't need near as many first lieutenants, so <laughs> that cut the odds way down that you would get siphoned off yeah. and sent somewhere else. <laughs> so, And the other thing they did was while you were still there at Fort Bragg, yeah. they went ahead and did a top-secret crypto security clearance on you. So we arrived in south vietnam with a top secret crypto Crypto, clearance which is above top secret one step right and so when we got to long bend uh there were 13 of us lieutenants on that flight that were assigned a fifth group and when we got there uh they tried to put us with the ninth (laughs) infantry division (laughs) but the they they looked and they said, you know, these guys all got top secret clearances. They got all this kind of stuff and everything else. And the first and lieutenants. He said, and, and their first lieutenants and the, and the fifth group is not going to stand for us taking these guys away from them because they put too much into them. They're going to fight this big time. So all 13 of us got wow. on the plane and we went to the to train. To the train. We got to the train. Okay, guys. In country uh, training? Uh, yeah, we did that. But right. the first day there – we walked in, uh, went in to see the adjutant, and uh, it was about noontime. And so he took all our p- paperwork and documents, and he said, you guys go over to the chow hall, get you something to eat, come on back here about 1.30, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Of course, he used 1,300, 1,400. We yeah, talk, talk military-type stuff. Of then. course. 
<laughs> and uh, so we did. We came back. And so he had this whole stack of things here. And he says, well, guys, here's the good news. All, all of you got these TS clearances and all this kind of stuff, and we're really short. Every one of you going to CNC. <laughs> Plane leaves in three hours. Three hours? <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Yeah. So you never got the in-country training. <laughs> Jump on a plane and welcome to CNC well, or Mac Sog. Well, we did because then they then then they came up with oh, the thing. Okay. okay, hey, when we started, they were coming over to get us to take us to the to the airfield, right? And they said, no, 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 they hadn't been to the COC course. They hadn't been to the COC course. Uh, why do they need to go to the COC course? Because the colonel said so. Okay, Indeed. so. We went to the COC course. Right. I was in the COC course that ambushed the NVA company. You know that story? No. <laughs> yeah. I'm always up for any, any story where you ambush an NVA company. Yeah. <laughs> how many? First of all, how many people were in your training group there? Uh, we had uh, w- really one platoon. We had four squads. Oh wow! So that's basically forty guys. We had give or take a lieutenant you know, or two, give or take a few, <laughs> and, and that included the mountain yards that was with us too. Oh really? So, okay. So, so uh, we we're out there, and they take us out. You know, A101 was the one doing the training right. and that kind of stuff, and they had a really good first lieutenant that was in charge of that, and he was our patrol leader, and we went out. And of course, the first day we wandered around out through the rice paddies and we sat there and set up an ambush and all we saw was about three or four tree frogs and that kind of stuff <laughs> you know, just very very boring night just yeah, sitting yeah. out there and uh that type of thing so one of the older sergeants that had been there already had a couple of tours he started complaining ah, ah, you know what are we doing out here we're just wasting time so finally this lieutenant says you guys really want to get some action yeah you know man we're gonna win this war in a week so you let's get at it yeah so <laughs> so he says okay and he said you know hit your rucksacks up because we're getting ready to hump it and i mean we humped hard all day and we pulled into this place just before dark <clears throat> it was out of our ao we weren't supposed to be there really yep and, but this, you're still but in this, country now. But it was still in A one. It was still A A one hundred one's AO. But it wasn't the AO we were supposed to be in. <laughs> and so they had heard that there had been and the some AO act- is the area of operations because right. every unit had a special area of operations in country. And so uh, we pulled up in this tree line, and there was a, a village over here, and then about uh, there was big wood line and all these rice paddies in between and some uh, little hills not mountains but pretty good little hills yeah heavily forested and that kind of stuff and they had been told that the vc were coming in at night and requisitioning rice and stuff from the villagers and sure. the villagers were told somebody about it so we pulled into the woods over here Oh, probably about an hour before sundown and we all sat down got something to eat and all of that we sat there and let it get dark and right after it got dark we moved out and set up four squad size ambushes across that area oh wow we'd been in position maybe maybe 45 minutes not very long less than an hour and 
the center ambush cut loose and a, a group six six or eight walked right up in front of them and they waited till they got about far from here to that door about 10 feet away before they let up they let loose on them yeah well that was all hey, hey, hey we done shot up all these guys well first thing you know the whole tree line opened up we done unbushed the point for an nva company <laughs> so now you're 40 versus the company yeah <laughs> green this is first firefight we ever been in okay so you know the nva's tax it first thing they do they flank you to the left you're right they're left yeah so these little squad size ambushes were about 100 meters apart so they walked up right between the two center ambushes so when they flanked us to the left as luck would have it they run straight into the other one they let them get up about you know 10 or 20 feet in front of them and they let into them they shot them up big time so then they come around they come around the right and they come around the right side they come to my ambush we shot them up <laughs> so man they they started pulling back no kidding and everything else yeah, and i yeah. thought man we done hit up a big company this thing spread across this whole valley yeah so the lieutenant done knew what was going on so he started calling us said look guys we got to consolidate let's get all get back in here we got into one rice paddy did a perimeter inside of what rice paddy redistributed everything everybody had 32 rounds left that was all no. we had per person we had 32 rounds per person and we had, uh, I think, two laws, and uh, no claymores, and we had two two belts of uh, M sixty M sixty machine guns. Yeah. But you know, we just yeah, they thought we just going to go out and walk through the woods for three days, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and in the meantime, you can see them getting ready. They're getting ready to come. Oh wow! And we're all sitting there thinking, oh boy, and can't talk to nobody on the radio. Because we're not in the AO, right. we're out of range. Can't get anybody on the radio. Can't do anything. I mean, and then just about the time everybody was thinking this is the end of the road, guys. You're writing your dear mom letter. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, just about that time, all of a sudden the radio come up on the guard freak, and the guy says, "Hey, is those friendlies down there?" and lieutenant went up and he says uh yeah we're friendly yeah and he says well we thought something was going on down there we saw some red and green tracers going on what's up and he says well you know we're in uh, pretty deep stuff down here and we can't get a hold of headquarters you know here's their frequency here's their call sign tell them we need some help we need ammunition we need reinforcements we need stuff right now this, this guy well, it was uh, Spooky 3-4, one of those oh, wow. old C-47 gunships. Sure. Yeah. And he was just out flying around that night and saw the tracers and everything and oh flew God. over and just checked it out. So he said, okay, well, I'll give you a little help while I'm here. He said, I got nothing else to do right now. <laughs> and he said, uh, I, I need to get a good location on where you are before I start shooting. <laughs> and so the lieutenant said, you know, he got a, shot up a pin flare. Yeah. And uh, he kicked out of the flare out of the uh, out of the gunship. Yeah. And so he circled around a little bit. He says, "Yeah, I see you. I got the command group down there, right underneath me." And the lieutenant said, 
that ain't the command group. That's us. <laughs> the classic line, he, the pilot says, well, who the hell is all those other guys? <laughs> Get, shoot them. <laughs> he said, and he said, anybody that's not in this one rice paddy is not a good guy. And he said, okay. He said, you guys better get down tight to the ground because I'm going to shoot a bunch. <laughs> so, man, we got down as close as we could to them rice paddies. Yeah. And rice paddy dykes. And, I mean, he put a circle around us just. Whoa. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and then after he did that a few times, pretty soon he says, oh, I just heard uh, choppers are inbound. And pretty soon they come in. I don't know if you ever knew Rat Wilson and you know no. and, and, and only uh, by name. Bleacher and and those guys, they were riding a the ship. They kicked off the medevac ships. Not supposed to have be in and camo. Right. All, you know, door came open and Rat Wilson and and, and uh, Bill Bleacher, man, they're throwing ammunition and stuff out the door. <laughs> <laughs> and we loaded. Uh, we had uh, uh, one American killed, uh, two yards killed and uh a few people shot up and uh, so we loaded everybody loaded them on yeah, yeah. and everybody left with the new this ammunition is at night they came in during the night yeah whoa well the the spook had, had dropped the flares. out flares sure. and uh, that kind of thing so that kind of helped helps a lot uh, and uh so there was a village about uh, probably a kilometer a half two kilometers away so we backed off into that village and we went out and policed up some bodies and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we got back into that village, and the village chief looked at this guy, and this was the local VC battalion commander. Really? And the other guy that we killed uh, and drug him in was a, a VC, NVA, but he was a VC paymaster, and he had Pay payroll and the pay records for the whole VC battalion in that whole area. Whoa. And that, so we <laughs> we set up a perimeter in the uh, there and spent the night. They probed us a few times, but that was really it. They came out. They, they brought part of the uh, Natrang might force out the next yeah. morning, did a whole sweep of the area. They picked up like 15 or 20 more bodies and lots of blood trails. Uh, where we had shot them up really bad because they you the advance the advance party uh when we were sitting out here just before dawn yeah the advance party came into the village along with the the field workers no kidding. and they had sent word back or not sent word back but the back the head the big group right assumed these guys went in there's no shots. There's nothing going on. So everything's cool. We're going to go in and do our thing. So we caught them by total, absolute surprise. They were walking along, you know, with a rifle up they on their shoulder and just diddy bopping <laughs> in. They didn't think there was anything going on. It, and again, wow. just pure luck that we moved in behind when they came through and all that kind of stuff. So, and and the paymaster had something like uh, fifteen thousand piastres on him. And that wow. kind of stuff. So. Yeah. And you got the records and names of the uh, local uh, Viacom right. and infrastructure. They, and they went out and started rounding up people there and all that. So it just absolute. Uh, so that was the COC course I was in. <laughs> That's a great 
a great learning. That's better than anything we did. <laughs> so, so we went. Uh, so yeah. after that, then it was our turn to go uh, up country. Right. And uh, so we, at that time, there was only uh, we had the six FOBs, and right. every, everything was under CCC up at Camp Fay <clears throat> in Da Nang. Right. Yes, sir. Uh, under uh, Colonel Warren. Right. And so they uh, they sent us up to CCC, <clears throat> and at CCC is where they started to sign us. A uh, couple the, of went to you had your Did you get your uh, top-secret briefing at the, yes. at the command and control at, at, at the air base? Or I saw yeah, it, yeah, yeah at, the at, air camp, at Camp Fay. That right. was that little Navy camp right on the beach, right across from Da Nang Airfield. I really forget. It's too long ago. I just remember we got it there near the airfield right. somewhere. Yeah, that was Camp <laughs> Fay, and that was where CCN headquarters was right. at that point in time. And uh, Well, just command and control, but yeah, then FOB 4. Yeah. And they had one, three, yeah, one, two, three, and four. One was at Fubai, two was at Contum, three. Three is Quezon. Three was Quezon. Uh, four was Honok Tau. No, no four, was, four was us. Five four was, was Bambi to it. FOB and, six was Honok Tau. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. And so by the time you get in the country, they're closing down FOB three, moving it to uh, Mylock. Right. Where uh, Clyde Sincere then right. became the OIC. Right. Yes, sir. And uh, so uh, when we got there, I think, uh, you remember Denny Neal? Dennis yes. Neal? Of course. He was my... OCS classmate. Really? He was part of that group. No uh, kidding. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Denny Neal and I were in the same platoon in uh in OCS. And Oh yeah. And uh but Denny Neal and I can't remember who else went to Fubai. A couple of them went to Contum. Me and one other guy went to FOB four. You know, they just kind of said, You go here, you go there, you go this. And that's how I wound up at FOB four. Okay. I think here we're there. We've had a little bit of a flavor how you got there, hatch a force on a recon, get your experience, get shot five times, survive. <laughs> and then uh, they arranged for you to go to Longton to establish, because before there had been SOG training, uh, some at, um, um, we had, the very first training was up, um, not Lang Vey. But the other one that got overrun in May, and they had some training for country for the uh, saw guys. Uh, Cam Duck. Cam Duck. Thank you. And uh, they were trained there. Then Cam Duck got overrun in May, and so there's a downtime when there was no one zero school. By the time you're ready, they said we want to establish a official one zero school where anybody coming into SOG will get some training here, and that mission is thrust upon you. Let's have you, so you go down to Longton after you leave uh, FOB4, and this is where you meet Colonel Johnson, and you're telling Colonel Johnson, I want to run missions, and Colonel Johnson says to you, Travis, training people is really important, or how he said it to you is better. <laughs> well, the when I first went, I, got, uh, I went to Saigon and got briefed by Colonel Johnson, who was Chief Op 35, <clears throat> and also Colonel Cavanaugh, who was Chief Sog. Chief Sog, he replaced the Jack Singlob. He he replaced uh, uh, Colonel Singlob, and so I got briefed there, and then went out. <clears throat> excuse me, went out to the uh, camp, and Longton had a long history of being a super secret camp. Uh, 
popular rumor was it was originally built by the French way back before World War II. They got kicked out during World War II. The Japanese uh, occupied it. And then after the World War II, the French took it over again. And then when they left, uh, when the French pulled out, the CIA took it over and then later on gave it to SOG. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Okay, I didn't so, know that part. Yeah, I mean, it's been a super secret camp from way back into the into the. And they had uh, some other 30s. operations that were running out of there. Oh, they had nine other operations. Oh, no kidding. Uh, I guess everybody probably knows about it now, but they were, they were training agents to go into North Vietnam, uh, POWs that had chew hoid and that right. kind of stuff. And uh, they had strata teams. I don't know if you remember strata yeah, teams. Yeah, when we talked, I talked with um, Speedy Gaspard, Major George Speedy yes. Gaspard. He was my CO. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, then you know Speedy. And he he talked about how um, when they said the, the strata teams, one of the reasons why there was a successful operation, once he got run, at least the part that he had, they launched out of Thailand, flew into North Vietnam mm-hmm. for the missions, inserted, never told Saigon about where they're gone. Exactly. Whereas the SOG teams, exactly. our missions went through SOG headquarters right. where right. we had a spy and other things that had been set up in country so that when we left the SOG base, people observed it. We went across the fence. There were other observers. But Strata didn't have all those issues. Right. They That's went it. in, did the mission, and... Some of those were training up at Longton, where right. you found yourself. Yes, and they had a project called Borden, where they would take POWs and they'd train them up and all of that, and then they would insert them back into North Vietnam to go back into their unit and say that they had been captured and had escaped and all that kind of stuff, and then they were to be double agents. Uh, yeah, but that program back, didn't didn't have very much success. Had very little success, if, if any. because uh, <laughs> you know after they pull off a couple of fingernails, people begin to talk. They do, yeah. <laughs> you know, silly them, but uh, they uh, it didn't work very well. But and and there were uh, uh, part of the Elder Son project was down there where we actually doctored. The, the ammunition and that type thing. And were they were you working with CISO at the time on that? Or was, was that just strictly your local working with the ammo? So it would be your people, SF, that would get the ammo set up for Eldest Son, right. where we would get it. Like when we went out, we always had at least a couple of... Uh, uh, 82 mortar rounds. Well, uh, or the 7.62 rounds, which would be in like little ammo clips. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I remember those, and so we would take those and then drop them along the trail. Yeah. Or if you found an enemy cache, you put them in there. They would use it to blow up in their face. Yeah, My but th- then so you get assigned to Longton, and I like to focus right then on the one zero school because that became the school for training. And like you said, it was critical because you had uh, after sixty eight, we had the highest casualty rate of SOG during the war. We lost more men. Right. MIAs. I mean, when I arrived at Fubai at FOB1 in 68, we had several teams been wiped out, others that had been close to wiped out. And, of course, that's how I got my job. Idaho was wiped out. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the Secret War. <clears throat> so this is what you're facing, and we needed people get into the field, but they had to be trained. Right. And that's where Longton comes in. 
the one zero school. So you reported in there, and who was the you became the OIC officer yeah, in charge? I, yes, I, first I, Lieutenant Mills. Yes, okay. I was uh, I got there, and I come into Saigon, and I got a once I met Colonel Johnson, Colonel Cavanaugh, and I was turned over to the three shop, and was given a briefing, and they said we want to start this leadership one zero school and they gave me a standard patrolling manual and a something that a a three-week training program that somebody had found somewhere once upon a time for a a patrolling class or something like that yeah and they said here you go yeah go start the school (laughs) <laughs> and none and, of that was related to what Sog was doing. No, absolutely yeah, not. You know, might as well have been, might as well have been the Sunday comics. But right, it, and just for our audience, again, the Secret War went from '64 to 1972, and that's why '68 was a critical year in terms of losses, the need for the training, and here you are. I'm sorry, but I wanted to get that context. Yeah, that that's fine. Uh, <clears throat> so they told me that your staff will be one qualified and very experienced one zero or one one from each one of the fobs so it's going to be you and six others that uh will will be the instructors on this thing and the instructors will be there for a short period of time but they will be there, and they will do that, and they're well qualified. And I, okay, so I go down, and and uh, then, then the next day they take me out to Longton and introduce me about the guy that's going to run this new one zero school for you. Talking to the uh, Longton <laughs> commander, yeah. Of course, he's sitting there dumbfounded. This first time he's heard about this. So uh, <laughs> typical <laughs> army operation here. <laughs> So uh, then the major that brought me out there, he said, well, I got to go. I got to get back before they close the roads. <laughs> to, so I got to get Saigon. back to Saigon. Yeah, yeah. You know? So he takes off. So we both kind of sit there and look at each other. And finally, they think, okay, let's everybody get a good night's sleep because I think we like to have to have a long talk tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. So we went there the next day, and we sat down and started talking about what – they thought was going on and that type thing and so we said okay uh start filling out your paperwork to get who's going to provide all of the the weapons the ammunition who's going to pay for the chow who's going to do this the billet where we going to put you all of those things so we started working all that out i turned in a requisition list to sog four and then the instructors started to show up and they got the same treatment i did they somebody walked into barracks one day gave them a set of orders and said you're due at the airfield in two hours uh get off at long time (laughs) they'll tell you they'll tell you what's going on no kidding so uh so they showed up squirrel sprouse richard gross really i mean Really, some really, really top guys. A yeah, uh, guy sprouts. out of Contum uh, called, Tom, uh, I think his name was Tom Coton. Uh, I can't remember the guy from Bammy to it. Uh, and uh, a guy named Johnson out of FOB4 okay. uh, came down in SSC. Because with, with Rick Gross, I always wondered, he was on <laughs> ST New Jersey at FOB1. Mm-hmm. And Squirrel Sprouse had come in to visit us. 
he ran a couple missions up there. TDY mm-hmm. had FOB one after being at Contoon. Yeah, he was out, he was and out of Contoon. Amazing. These guys were of legend, and and Rick was just highly respected. Yeah. And I always wondered what happened to him. Now yeah. I know. Yeah, <laughs> he went to Long Todd the train. Yeah. Oh my and god. And so, I've, I, by the way, I've talked to his son. Oh, really? And, he, and I'll relay that message to his son because his son never knew what his dad did <laughs> after FOB1. He knew he was at FOB2 later mm-hmm. and then at CCC when he came back for another tour of duty. And uh, so once those... At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. These guys got there. We sat down and kind of started. They gave us a, a – the strata teams were on a break. Right. And so we were going to use the strata team barracks as our barracks, and we got one of those old World War II-type barracks. Except sure. they weren't double-story. They were just one story. And uh, half of it was was a, like a team room to – prep and, and do lesson plans and all that kind of stuff and the rest of it was bunks so we just lived in one hooch there yeah the instructor group uh and this was an op 34 camp we were op 35 people and as you well know uh as you well know uh you know op 34 op 35 everything was so compartmentalized nobody knew what anybody else was doing and it was all that stuff about don't ask and don't tell and all of those things and so uh again uh, trying to figure out how we're going to how we're going to support uh this thing yeah uh so all us guys said okay how are we going to accomplish what we want to do? Our yeah. job is to take brand new guys that never even heard of SOG before, and in two weeks plus a one-week, quote, exercise, yeah. FTX, if you will, field training exercise. Indeed. You know, the, the Army requires you have an FTX. I hated that word. We're going out <laughs> We're going out with live ammunition against real bad guys. This is not a field training exercise, guys. Indeed. And, uh, <laughs> But it had to be classified in FTX to make it qualify for a school. Yeah. And 
it, we, we thought about all the schools we went to, and none of that, that scenario worked. And then we said, okay, how did we learn? We learned by, one, going out in the field as a 1-1 or whatever and, and having the 1-0 train you, or two, when somebody would run into something out there that nobody had run into before, everybody ganged up in the club around the table, and we everybody started talking about, okay, this is what happened. This is how we got rid of tracker dogs. This is how right. we did this. This is how we looped back and did a clover leaf to get the trackers. And, you know, this is sure. how we set up an ambush, and this is how we do a prisoner snatch. And it was just – And that would include wiretaps too, right? Set, yeah, how to do wiretaps wow. and all those type things. Yeah. And you know, at the club, you just sit around a table, and everybody asked questions and talked, and it was just a real uh, informal but very organized and very uh, useful thing. Sure. That's how you trained. And, and so common we said, sense and experience. every one of you guys have been out in the field. Every one of you guys have done that. So first off, let's make a list of what these guys, just X number of subjects that they have to know. And, you know, one, uh, you know, we talk about your insert, how you go in, how you do a VR, how you go out and try to pick an LZ that you can get in, uh, how you analyze your particular AO that you're going to be working in for that particular mission, uh, how you organize your team, the equipment, what you carry, what you don't carry, how you keep it silenced. Oh yeah! How much food? Critical. You, how much food you take? Uh, all that kind of stuff. Uh, we we come up with one thing and says we are not going to do land navigation and map reading. Every one of you have been through the Q course. If you don't know how to read a map now, we don't have time to teach you. <laughs> so you better have that yeah. that skill already because there's no need to try to train you now because we don't have the time. And the other one was uh, artillery and and mortar fire and artillery control don't uh, worry about that you you got no artillery you got no mortar so you don't don't worry about that plus you already should know how to do that we are going to that include working tack air then no we said we are going to teach you how to call in an airstrike okay we are going to teach you that <laughs> but we're not going to we're not going to fool with this other stuff because yeah. it, it it's a waste of time indeed and so we come up with that whole uh uh a training series of, of training sure and we started say okay how much time do we allot for each one and the first time through was just kind of a guess as to how much we would spend on each one and then we would go to each person like whether it be squirrel or or, or dick gross and say you know what's what's the thing here you think you would like to teach and you would like to talk to these guys yeah and they you know you'd say well I'd like to do the insert and the first, the first two hours on the ground, and you know how you get in, yeah. get established, and know where you are, what you're doing, and, and the whole move, like ten move for ten, move listen for ten, 10 listen yeah. ten, all, all those kind of things. And so the way we would do the classroom is, we would have one principal instructor that would kind of give a little bit of a five or ten minute introductory type thing and then we just kind of open it up for questions and the other instructors that were not uh, busy putting together their lesson plans and things like that would be in there and the students were open to ask any question they wanted to ask about this subject matter 
And then we sat down and talked just one-on-one about this is what you do when you got trackers. This is how you get rid of trackers. And this is how you this is how you pack a rucksack and we took every one of them this is how you pack your rucksack this is what you take this is what's important uh you can leave this stuff behind you know like i was talking earlier you know i i took three days worth of chow because you probably weren't going to be in there that long plus the fact you know when you start trying to load up with chow you got to shut down on ammunition and uh i'd a whole lot rather be hungry than run out of bullets so and you know make sure you got you can go a long time without food but you can't go a long time without water so but you you got to have water and and where to pack stuff how to put stuff on your rucksack so that you can get it when you need it and you know exactly where it is your rucksack is packed just like his rucksack so that if you need uh, a knife you need a, a swiss seat you need this it's on his rucksack same place it's on your rucksack so right. you know how to go over there and get it same way with the uniform what kind of uniform what you carry in your pocket you know you carry your Irk 10 in your pocket or Irk 10's a radio right. an emergency radio and you carry Ultra that because if you lost everything else you still got your Irk 10 yeah there are certain things you carry on your person then there's certain things you carry on your web gear. Then there's other things you carry in your rucksack. And we went through step by step by step how you how you packed all of that and you put it there to deal with every situation that would come up. And so we come up with a pretty good little program where we just sit yeah. down and talk to these guys. And then the biggest segment that we had uh, – for the whole course, it probably took up at least 25, maybe 30% of the whole course was IA drills, sure. immediate action drills. What do you do when you get hit? You know, we get hit from the front, get hit from the flank, whatever the case may be. Every man has to know exactly what to do without even thinking. It's got to be an absolute immediate response. And those are live fire drills. Yes, yeah. Oh yeah, and <laughs> we show. And the the other thing was how to pack that web belt. You know, every guy out there carried somewhere around twenty five or thirty magazines. Right. So, and we only put eighteen rounds in a magazine. Sure. And so, you know, we wound up with, what seven eight hundred rounds of ammunition. The average guy you're going to come up against out there, a well equipped NVA, is going to be very lucky if he has 100 rounds of ammunition so we got six guys with 800 rounds apiece and we can just shoot a lot more and we can really overwhelm them with firepower because that's what you got to do in the first 10 seconds of that fire oh, yeah. fight because at the end of that first 10 seconds it's going to have a huge outcome on how that firefight ends and if you can come out and overwhelm him, it's just like walking out and hitting the bully right smack in the nose, right off the face. Just bam. <laughs> and, you know, you addle him just a little bit. And six men can run a lot further than 30 can in trying to maneuver and all that kind of stuff. And how to how to prime your claymores with 30 seconds or or 10 seconds or 15 second time fuses you know where to put them who's got them and who all you got to do is use a hand and arm signal that was the other thing once you're on the ground don't talk 
Everything is hand and arm signals. Everybody ought to be able to uh, understand what you want done, when, and everything else without having to say a word. And I mean, it was just intense uh, sure. for, for this. Uh, I mean, gaining far superiority in those first two or three seconds was just like of the utmost priority. Yeah. Otherwise, you're dead. Yeah, that's right. And so it, it's to impress, you know, and a lot of the guys, the first couple of days, the new guys that was just coming in country, you know, they that first few few <laughs> classes we was getting them, they were sitting their eyes getting really big, kind of looking at the back door like, <laughs> is, is there a way out of here? Uh, but it, and and our goal, and and I I realized this from the very beginning, that. We could not make them a bang bang one zero. Right. But what we could do is give him enough uh, knowledge and experience, especially in the IA drills and that type of thing, that he could come in, go on a team as a one one, and be a productive member in the shortest time possible. Which was he, critical. He meld right into that team, and because when we graduated a class and they went back to their camp probably 80 percent of them were on the ground in less than a week wow okay you know i yeah, mean sure. they would go in go right into a team and bang they're yeah i remember the guys coming back to fob one then later at the ccn mm -hmm. after they'd been down there yeah you're right they were on a team and then hey here you go and so you know they're you're in the lineup, guys. You're a starter. <laughs> right. You know, you, there's no sitting in the dugout waiting to warm up a little while. You're going to go right into the fight. I right? know. And so that training there too. I mean, the, the way you've just described it. I mean, I can't think if there would be any other military operation in the history of the United States that put together an operation through experience, common sense, talking at the club. Right. as opposed to some kind of a training barracks or something. But yet the course that came out was highly respected. And um, we've run into people that have uh, read a little bit about CNC, and they've used some of the SOPs for their training in different generations mm -hmm. of uh, uh, running missions within special forces or spec ops folk going across the fence in different wars. Right. Amazing. And was there any other – so um, – as you establish all this, how long does it go before it becomes fully operational? And then it was there until the end of the war. Yeah. Uh, or at least well, the end of the secret war. Those guys came in, <clears throat> and we had a week to get get ourselves organized and that type of thing. And then after a week, we got a message from Saigon that said the first class will be arriving next Friday. Was oh, that right? Yeah, <laughs> and so we had a very very short period of time uh, to to gear up and get it done, and uh, sure enough, boy, they showed up, and uh, we started uh, uh, we started the training, and the the, the first uh, training course we had a few hiccups because it was the first time we went sure. through, and and uh, but the guys uh, understood it. Uh, took the training well we went up to Contum and we launched on real targets uh we had four teams uh so that was your ftx would be out of Contum and into the ao or in country uh it we we sent some across the border we sent some in country uh Contum, we were 
we briefed them well about what we were trying to do. <clears throat> and so they were being given a whole lot of missions, and some of them in-country, and they weren't real high priority like a lot of them were. Right. And so they could give a few teams a little bit of rest and let us do some of these not top-of-the-line missions, but it's still a real mission. Absolutely. And, and they went out, and uh, we some went across the border, some stayed on this side sure. of the border uh, as to where we went and uh, and that type of thing. We actually uh, did a thing where uh, we ran uh, the point for a fourth fourth division operation out of play coup really and uh, how'd that go oh it, it went really well it, it well i'll say it went really well it uh at first <laughs> it didn't go very well because you know off the helicopter come these guys that look like the guys these all right. these all these grunts been fighting with out there and they said, <laughs> these guys you know and it had okay guys don't be shooting at any of these guys yeah. and that kind of stuff he said these guys are going to go out in front of us and they're going to make sure we don't get shot up like, you know, the, the first cab did down at uh, I drank. How Drang. Yeah. Oh. He said, these guys are going to go out and they're going to be our eyes and ears out front. And he says, I promise you, they're, they are good. If there's something out there, you'll know about it. No kidding. How, so, so, they, so how'd that go? It went well. It went well. They found some bad guys and yes. the 4th Division was able to apply some they, firepower on them. They, yep. Uh, wow. guy named uh, – do you ever know Vic Doria? Uh, no, sir. He, he was one of the team – one of the, the instructors that uh, his team found a base camp. Wow. And no kidding. So – That's saying something. Well, as we go along here, so at some point you made a mistake of getting promoted to captain in June <laughs> 1969. Yes. And by that time, I guess you're getting pretty close to Dero, so did you extend to stay a little longer? Uh, I – well, as a matter of fact, my D-Rose was in May, and uh, I didn't uh, I didn't get promoted uh, till June. Until June. Right. But I did extend. Uh, of course. <laughs> I, I uh, one of the things uh, I, I'll kind of go in and fill in a little bit more history. After I'd been there about three cycles, and things had been going well, and we had a, a little bit of a break. And I was uh, told to go in and give Colonel Johnson a briefing about how everything was going and that kind yeah. of stuff. And uh, and again, to go back, and I hate to kind of keep repeating myself, but when we first started, I turned in all this requisitions, uh, all this requisition to Chief to the SOG Four, and we got about a third of what we asked for, and basically. Sog Ford so said, you right know, about here, your experience as an S four officer <laughs> in the old days came into a play a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> and so they uh, uh, they they said you're just going to have to make do with what you got. Well, in the very first class, about the, about the third day that we were into the third third day on that thing, Colonel Cavanaugh and Colonel Johnson came out to visit to training. So the instructor, I'm there uh, in the classroom, and all of a sudden some runner comes up and says, get to the front gate right now. Somebody's up there you got to see. Okay. <laughs> so I go up, and there's Kavanaugh, Colonel Kavanaugh and Colonel Johnson. 
two of the top men in SOG. And excuse just for the record, Colonel Kavanaugh was highly respected. Yes. He he replaced Jack Singlop, as we said earlier, but he was a World War II vet, airborne troop, and he saw intense combat in the uh, Asian theater. Right. Just a highly respected man and a true gentleman, class act. So they came in and... Uh, you know, I saluted, and we went to the classroom <laughs> and all that. And they stood in the back of the classroom and watched the class. <clears throat> and we were doing, you know how we used to use CAT codes? Right, yes, sir. And to do our communication and that kind of stuff. CAT and codes would be when you're doing Morse code and things you, like that. And, and uh, you know, you committed everything to memory, didn't have anything written down, and especially uh, the guard freak type things. Yeah. And uh, so we were doing this training. And we only had two radios, and we had 24 students. <laughs> and uh, Colonel Johnson quizzed me on that. He didn't really quiz me. He pretty much said, you know, up against the wall here. He said WTF. <laughs> That's right. And I went and got, being a good old S4, man, I got all the paperwork right here. I said, sir, here's what we ordered. Here's what we got. And when we ask for more, this is the explanation we got. He said, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> and so him and Colonel Cavanaugh went and got in their Jeep, and they left. Yeah. So we go on about our business and that kind of thing. And about about 5 o'clock that afternoon, I get this panic guy coming up and said, you got to get to the front gate. you got to get to the front gate. <laughs> Again. Again. So I got up to the front gate. And there's two deuce and a halves parked out front gate. And there's a buck sergeant that up there holding the clipboard. And I go up and I said, you know, I'm, I'm uh, Lieutenant Mills. And he said, oh, man. He says, I got everything on this list here. I got to get you to sign this before I can go back to Saigon. He said, I cannot leave here until you sign for this. <laughs> and that was everything on that list I wanted plus a few more things that Colonel Johnson luck. thought he thought they ought to have too, didn't it? <laughs> so that wow. put the emphasis all throughout, even to the sure. the the the, uh, the camp commanders right. that when that they send a replacement down here, don't send me your worst person. Yeah, don't send you me send, the rag man. You better send it because the one zero school is their top priority right now yeah and uh I, i'm always thankful for them for that because they stood up and said guys you're not going to shortchange this deal wow and, uh, and uh they made sure we had anything that we needed and uh they were they, they were really really good about doing that well so, yeah and then i i'm just fascinated that in your spare time you all pull some folks aside squirrel and rick and those guys and begin putting together eldest son ammo that we can go and put into enemy hands and hopefully they well, blow themselves up we had some philippine employees indeed you know like i say this was a uh, a secret camp that had all kinds of assets from all kinds of different and every projects. fob then later the cc <clears throat> ccs ccn the filipino uh trained skills from the motor from the motor pool to weapons to regular supplies, they were slick. Yes. And they were really good. They were really good. Yeah. So to get back to my original thought, thought. Here, yes, sir. They uh, so we'd done about 
after that, the courses sure. went a lot better. So after about three <laughs> courses, I was told to go in and, and uh, kind of bring Colonel Johnson up to date on what was going on. Well, but this time I'd already went through the guys when they were sent down there said, you'll go down for two cycles and then we'll replace you. Well, I'd already had to replace some, and <laughs> that type thing. And so I got them thinking, well, you know, maybe it's time I got replaced. Yeah. Maybe I, you know, that Major Toomey told me I could go back and have my team later on. So I go in and I give Colonel Johnson the full report and all that kind. He seemed pleased. So at that time, I figured I'd give him my best <laughs> shot. I'd play my whole card here. <laughs> and I told him that, you know, I've, I, I really uh, – was honored and privileged that I could run this school and stand it up and and do all that kind of stuff. But you know, I really wanted to go back and and get on my team and go back out in the war. And Colonel Johnson looked up and he always chomped a cigar. You know, he said they're chomping on a cigar, and he kind of looked up and he says, "Well, Lieutenant." He said, I know I'm getting old, and you know my memory is just not quite as good as it used to be. And then his voice went to about 20,000 decibels, like a B-52 would take off. And he stood up out of that chair, and he says, but I don't remember asking you what the hell you wanted to do. He said, the last time I read an Army manual, lieutenants don't tell colonels what they want to do. Colonel tell lieutenants what the hell they will do. Do I need to explain that more? No, sir, you don't. I understand fully. <laughs> he said, well, get your ass back out there and run that school. <laughs> I, I snapped to a salute, yes, sir, did an about face and moved out smartly. With your pants squishing. <laughs> with the smoke trailing behind me. So I went back out into the office area because I rode in with the courier, and the courier had a few more things to get done. So I'm sitting out there, and Colonel Johnson uh, uh, I'm sitting out in the in the lobby area of the office, and pretty soon somebody come over and said, "Colonel Johnson wants to see you again." Oh gosh, Ooh. you know I had enough. I'm smart enough to know I don't need no more. <laughs> I don't need to be told again. Uh, but I went in and reported to him, and yeah. he told me stand at ease, and uh, and he and in a very you know, nice voice and that type Fraternal of thing. Fraternal voice, yes. Yeah. He, you know, he said, Lieutenant Mills, he said, I want you to understand. I, I know how you feel. I was a young lieutenant once. I understand wanting to get back in the game and getting out there and, and get in it. He says, right now, if I had my way, I'd be the command of a brigade out here, and I'd be running and kicking ass and taking names. I'd be doing that. But somebody higher than me decided to assign me as a staff job this time this tour and as a professional soldier my job is to be the best staff officer i can and support my commander he said not everybody can be the star quarterback or the star running back somebody has to block wow yeah and this time whether you like it or not this is your time to block indeed you he said those guys out and you're there, the center on a team you depend <laughs> on you and wow. your staff and you owe it to them to give them at least a fighting chance of of surviving wow. this yeah yeah he said that's why you're here 
and that's why you're going to go out there and you're going to make this the best school in Vietnam. Wow, and it was. And so I stepped back, saluted, and said, thank you very much, sir, and I understand. Yeah. And I left. And it was about a two-and-a-half-hour ride out to Long Ton from down on Pasteur Street sure. in, at SOG headquarters. So I thought about it all the way back to camp. And sure. That, and by the time I got back to camp, you know, I said, you know, is this where I'm supposed to be? And, you know, I thought, I've got good teaching skills. You know, I'm, I'm healthy. I'm intelligent. Uh, all that kind of stuff. And we, I've got the knowledge that I can help. And this is where I need to be. I am where, where I need to be. So I got back to camp. And I gathered my staff together, and I gave them everybody's got a block speech. <laughs> that you know you're sure. you're 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 here, and you're here for a reason. You guys have got the skills, you've got the knowledge, and you've got the expertise. And these guys need it, and we're the only ones that give it to them. And we only got two weeks to do it. So, guys, this is our mission. And I want you to take it very, very seriously. And uh, so with that, we, I mean, I think the level of training increased and got very, very much better. Yeah, because the the training itself, the key part was even though you and I cast aspersions upon the acronym FTX, it's critical. Because that way, the training you've done for the prior two weeks, you now get it in the field, you're out with experience, uh, people from the cadre itself mm-hmm. again which is unique and then after that then you get shipped up to uh at that time three of the different bases mm-hmm. uh, ccn ccc CCS, at least yeah. you hit the ground running right you're able to go out and not figure out how to way to put your smoke grenade you're not right. going to be carrying any uh um any extra gear right you now there's no no hammocks or anything like this. This right. is a, your time on the ground. So these are the basics to survive with. Right. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Any any other last thoughts from uh, your tour of duty there? Uh, long time. I, I just kind of had one blaze through. I got to catch it again when it crosses. Uh, I was just trying to think of uh, one other thing there that uh, was this the back to the strategy teams with George Speedy. No, uh, well, let's put this. So here you are. We can come back. We'll bounce back on that. But so you get promoted to captain at this point. Then you go to first special forces group in Okinawa. Yes. Uh, I when I came back from uh, my turnaround leave, I was supposed to take over one of the one of the individual projects there in Camp Longton, and there was a Lieutenant Dan Hall out of CCS that came in and was my replacement for the one zero, uh, chief of the one zero school. Okay. And so I was to come back after leave and take over Project Borden. And uh, when I got back, uh, signed in, I was in the S3 office there, and I got reassigned to B-53, which is Camp Longton. Right. <clears throat> and uh, there was somebody else's name as the Project Borden leader. So I went to talk to the camp commander, and uh, he says, well, let me tell you. The guy that was the Camp S-3, the operations guy, 
he was supposed to extend, but he changed his mind. And I got to have, uh, as you well know, we have lots of projects going on in this thing, and I got to have somebody that knows what he's doing to be my operations guy. And watching you for the last seven, eight months run this one zero school, you're the guy that can do it. So you're the S3. Sorry about your other project. <laughs> and uh, I was disappointed to some point, but at the same time, I understood if I had been the commander, I'd have made the same decision because you got to have the right man and the right job. Uh, you know, if you don't have the right person and the right job, you're going to get people hurt and killed unnecessarily. And uh, so I understood that. I finished out my tour as the uh, uh, as the S3, and then I went ahead and rotated. And from there, I went to the first group in Okinawa and spent uh spent a 30-month tour there company tour and did did off-island missions to korea taiwan philippines uh and they were also still sending some snake teams back to yeah, saw snake too. One. uh my team was designated to go back on the snake bite project uh but i had been chosen uh about three months earlier to take a combo heavy team to Korea because the year before during full legal, the big exercise that right. we did every year, the Korean special forces only made 22% of their scheduled contacts. Really? Yeah. Their, their radio communications was absolutely horrible. So I took in a, uh, my team plus five extra combo guys and we taught we'd go in and spend six weeks which we had two three-week courses we'd run two courses come back to Oki, spend two weeks go back for six more weeks and in a period of i think we made four trips over there we trained every single radio operator in the korean special forces group wow no kidding yes we and uh and very very intense training on how to cut your antenna how to tune that old angry 87 oh. uh, how to do burst device all that kind of how to cut your antennas all of the that kind of stuff and i mean just i had uh uh sparky bright and arbogast and uh jim butler i mean you had I, butler I, yeah i had some <laughs> some of the best combo guys on the island uh, was on this project and I mean, we went over there and we trained and trained and trained, and uh, and I'll kind of jump ahead. When sure. we had full legal that year, the Koreans made eighty-seven percent of their contacts. Really? <laughs> but before that happened is when my team came up to go to snake bite. So man, I'm geared. I'm ready to go. You know, I'm ready to go back and snake bite one. Well. About the time they announced that, they were getting ready to send the combo team. We called it an ATTF, uh, Tactical Training Team. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were getting ready to send it back to Korea, and they sent word over that uh, they was going to have a new new captain on the, on the training team coming in. The commanding general of the Korean Special Forces Group called up colonel simpson 
<laughs> and said, no, you sent Captain Mills. <laughs> said, if you don't send Captain Mills, don't bother sending anybody. Ooh, really? <laughs> so I didn't get to take a snake bite team. I got to go back to Korea. <laughs> oh, my God. Too funny. But, but uh, I mean, we did uh, we did well. I, I was blessed with being able to be – have good instructor skills and to be able to manage instructors and make sure that they did their job well. Most of them didn't need a whole lot of instruction, but uh, I, I was very, uh, very blessed with the fact that I could, uh, I could get good results and and make things happen. So. Indeed. So, um, so you depart Okinawa, July 1972. You report to Fort Hood. That's where you spent essentially your last year in the army. Yes. And uh, was there any major, unique experiences there? Because at that time we were in the middle of the major withdrawal of uh, our forces from Vietnam. Right. Part of the Vietnamization process. Right. Uh, the only thing was just a typical army stuff. My first assignment, and of course. <laughs> It was to a mechanized infantry battalion in a tank tank heavy, uh, in in a tank heavy regiment or a tank heavy brigade, and the second armored division, and the first cal was on the other side of the post, and uh, so being a person that probably didn't even know how to spell mechanized infantry, <laughs> I got assigned the second worst job in a mechanized infantry unit. And that's the battalion motor officer. Oh, I mean, you're talking about you know, eighteen, twenty-hour days, six days a week. Just I mean, them old ragged uh, pieces of equipment, trying to get them up. And again, the big thing was, you know, we're getting the drawdown out of uh, out of Vietnam. Vietnam and all that kind of stuff. So you know what a peacetime army is. Peacetime army goes into every little dot has to be done, every T has to be crossed, and everybody is second guessing and reading everything three times to make sure there's no spelling errors. <clears throat> and we're used to just getting the job done. Yeah, you know, if I can roll them things out the back gate, what difference does it make? Just fix the damn APC and get yeah, it rolling. That, that's right. Just, yeah. just get that thing rolling. Make sure the gun fires, all that stuff. Well, no, you got to have paperwork done. You got to do this and. And we were just getting into the modern volunteer army and needless to say i've got a whole about uh, a regular line company and a mech infantry battalion has 144 men headquarters company had 349 <laughs> and i got all of the clerk the clerks the the cooks uh, the mechanics, the medics, <laughs> the red eye platoon, all that kind of stuff. They're scattered everywhere. You got absolutely very little contact, no control. Don't have any track vehicles. Got all wheel vehicles, and half of them are stuck in the mud. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it is just an absolute logistics and, and administrative nightmare. Uh, like I say, that's the second worst job in a uh, mechanized infantry battalion. So but I did well. You did. You I, liked I did. It, huh? I, you know, we went out on exercises. Man, I kept them old things rolling. Uh, usually got my butt chewed real good when we got back because <laughs> my paperwork wasn't done. But we always rolled the tracks out and we always got, got them back, back to the motor pool. We got things. We made it happen. 
And two of the company commanders, Alpha Company and Bravo Company commander, we were really, really good buddies. And the Charlie Company commander was uh, being uh, reposted to, to another base. So as my reward, I was going to get take over Charlie Company. I was going to be the third uh, line company. And then there was another guy there that was going to take over uh, headquarters company. <clears throat> well, the Alpha Company commander and the Bravo Company commander, they were I mean, absolute excellent uh, commanders. And uh, they got a hold of the battalion commander, and they said, Sir, let me tell you, you're going to put such and such a guy in here as headquarters company commander. And he said, let me tell you, you got to have the absolute best captain you got as a headquarters company commander. <laughs> because, Who would that be? Because if if he don't do his job, we ain't got. We can't do our job. We got no gas. We got no ammunition. We got no chow. We got nothing. We, we, you gotta have the best captain really? you got to be your headquarters yeah. company commander. So my reward for having the second best. <laughs> job is I got the worst job. The worst job. <laughs> I got uh, the second worst job. I got the worst job oh as the headquarters God. company commander. Yeah. And uh, we went into a thing. We had a thing there in 1975 called OSC Test 6. And it was the new tri-cap thing where they were taking uh, an active duty uh, division and augmenting it with the the National Guard and, right. and Reserve to make up this. You'd have two active, one reserve, two active, one reserve, and they put them all together. <clears throat> they were going to test how well that could be integrated together and that kind of stuff if we had to move an entire force because the force was down real low at that point in right. time. You know? Sure. So uh, we practiced and practiced and practiced on that thing, and then we had OSC Test 6, which pitted the whole Second Armored Division against the entire First Cav, and we fought east and west across Fort Hood, which normally everybody went north and south. So you didn't even need a map. All right. you had to do was say, remember where we were six weeks ago and those the second night down yeah. by the creek? Yeah, we're going there. You know, I mean, you didn't need to have a map and say you're going to this grid quarter or nothing else. <laughs> but nobody ever went east and west. Plus, they took all of the admin stuff and everything and went out and spent three weeks and totally de-dudded the impact area, which was the whole center cavity of uh, Fort Hood. And that's when we went east and west. And let me wow. tell you, you better know how to read a map because there's no tank trails. There's yeah. nothing out there. All of that stuff's been overgrown for 10 years because it's an impact area. Sure. And uh, that type of thing. And then, Do you have to worry about uh, and ordinance that didn't explode? We had some, yeah. A company, my buddy Jim, you know, yeah, yeah. He, uh, he got his track blown off with a uh, <laughs> run over a dud A1 yeah. round. Sure. And uh, But we had a few go off here and there and all that stuff. Just to keep it interesting. That, that's part of the game. And uh, so we did that for six weeks. Second Armored against, against the first cap. Fought back and forth, east and west across that. At the end of that thing, all over, First uh, Battalion, 50th Infantry, which was our battalion. Yeah. Best infantry, best mechanized infantry battalion on, on post. 
A company and uh, B company, uh, A company and Bravo company. B company was the best infantry company, uh, and uh, A company was the uh, second best in of the whole post. Wow. We got we gave away Charlie Company and got A Company of the 266 Armor. So we had a tank infantry team. Sure. A Company 266 uh, with the Captain Scully. He was the best armor company on post. <laughs> I got the second best headquarters company on post. The only headquarters company that was better than me was the Airborne Company in the second hour in uh, the first cab division. And the the airborne oh, okay. they, they yeah. had one airborne company. Wow. And that that yeah. that was the only uh or one airborne battalion and that he that was the the rated the best one on post and I was second best on post. <laughs> so So from there you hang up you hang up your uh <laughs> and we all got a pink slip. Those, yeah. All right, thank you for your service. <laughs> for the drawdown. <laughs> Indeed. So for November seventy three you process out and then just the uh, follow up you uh, you and Bobby had time to have a few children along the way no we never had children no okay uh, kind of a story about that but I'll but that's alright and then so your next as you go on with your career from there what did you go into after the army and then um, I love your weatherman story but that seemed like that was later in your career <laughs> yes, yes it was <laughs> uh, uh, initially <laughs> And I've told, kind of told this story, you know, when you get out and and at that time, all of the guys coming out of the Army plus the economics of the country were really bad at that time. Yes. Unemployment was high and everything else. Gas shortages. And uh, so, you know, I'd go to all the typical companies, you know, IBM, yeah. Xerox, whatever the case may be about, and – Tell them all the things I can do. You know, I manage multiple hundreds of people. Uh, Direct airstrikes, dropping napalm. Millions <laughs> of dollars worth of equipment and all that kind yeah. of stuff. And all of that. And then that basically say, boy, that's very, very impressive and all that. That's very good. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get back to you. Basically, they're saying, you know. That's absolutely great. And the next time we get an infantry company, you're the first guy we're going to call. Or were they prejudiced <laughs> against Vietnam vets? Well, that didn't help either. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I wound up, like most of us do, coming out like that. You got no skills. You either go down and get your insurance license or you get your real estate license and you get out on the street and start peddling. That's <laughs> <laughs> And so that, that's what I did. I, I got my real estate license. I had a guy sponsor me, and I went down and took the test, passed, and got out and started peddling real estate. But, of course, that was a tough job at that point in time because the economy was bad. Oh, Interest yeah. rates were high, and there wasn't any money for houses. Well, the gas stores, they couldn't even drive the look of property. Right. So, I mean, it, it was pretty tough. So, But we were squeaking by. I mean, we, yeah. we were getting by. And then uh, I guess about 1974. I get yeah, it was in 74. I think. Uh, no, it was uh, early 75. <clears throat> I'm sitting at home one night. Phone rings. I pick up the phone. Speedy Gaspard. 
<laughs> hey, Speedy, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine, Trav. You know, and we talk a little bit and that yeah. type of thing. He said, what are you doing now? And I said, well, I'm up here in North Texas selling real estate. He says, not selling very good, is it? He said, I've been trying that in San Francisco, and it's not selling out here either. <laughs> oh, no, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he said, but look, I got a deal. He said, I got on with this company here, and we just they just bid, and they got a contract uh, to, to train a bunch of soldiers over in Saudi Arabia. And uh, he said, you know, it's like an ATT, uh, you know, uh, Army training team. Yeah. He said, we're going to Saudi. You want to go? <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know, Speedy. Uh, you know, what about He said, well, let me tell you, Trav, it, it's, just, it's a good deal. He said, they got, we got top-of-the-line pay scale. It's tax-free. Ooh. And, you know, they, thir- they furnish everything except soap. And they've got gas in Saudi yeah. Arabia. They got everything, but they furnish everything but soap, cigarettes, and razor blades. <laughs> and I said, sounds like a pretty good deal. I said, let me talk to Bobby about that. Yeah. He said, okay, well, you call me back. And I said, when can I call you back? He said, call me tomorrow. And I said, okay. <clears throat> so Bobby and I talked about it, and she wasn't really fired up about me going off on another tour somewhere. But uh, decided, I said, look, but the money, you know, this can help get us back on our feet here and get sure. us pretty stabilized and that type thing and so she said okay so i called back speedy and i think he called me on tuesday so i called him back on wednesday and uh i said okay speedy uh i'll go and he said we're going to deploy in may and i said oh okay well may i said when do i need to be there he said tomorrow (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> why tomorrow he said because the army says we have to have an instructor training class and guess who kn- who i know is a good instructor trainer <laughs> no kidding oh my and god so yeah i said speedy i can't be there tomorrow and you know, i gotta close down some things he said i said what can you give me he said monday Ooh. i said okay i'll be there monday wow so yeah so monday i caught an airplane going to Alhambra, California, <clears throat> and uh, st- I started up the training school. We got in, they, and they ran articles in the paper. We're looking for, uh, you know, retired service people to do sure. this training and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Overseas, good pay scale, tax-free, tax-exempt, all that kind of stuff and everything. Had literally hundreds of, uh, of applications. applications coming yeah. in. Uh the Los Angeles paper got a hold of it. All of a sudden, we become mercenaries. And, I mean, the corporate no. headquarters got surrounded by all kinds of newspapers. This big write-up. Smell a time, Speedy huh? got interviewed by Stag Magazine. You know, we had an article <laughs> in there. So Speedy coined the term. He says, well, we're not really mercenaries. We're just teachers. We're one step removed. We're executive mercenaries. <laughs> so, so we became the executive mercenaries. Oh. So we went through, started going through all of the stuff, and got in uh, some guys. Uh, I got it, me and one other guy. They brought in a uh, retired master sergeant from up at Fort Ord. He'd been in a basic battalion training for a long time. Sure. And so 
And the, the guy that was in charge of this whole product for the corporation was a retired basic training commander at uh, Fort Ord. Wow. <clears throat> so me and uh, this other guy, Jim Law, we put together uh, a two-week training program that we could train these guys how to teach. Well, you know, we weren't going to hire anybody that didn't know how to teach, but <laughs> the Army says it's got to have a training program. Yeah. So uh, we got the first 50 bunch of guys in, 37 were old group guys. I mean, I knew every one of them. No. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, I mean, it was uh, Ken Hain, uh Tom Naylor, uh, Joe Vasquez, all the guys from first group, and, uh, and of course, fifth group and sure. all that kind of stuff. So out of that first bunch, there were uh, 37 of them were SF guys. Wow. So <laughs> we went through the, the training, sure. deployed them. I trained three different groups. Then they deployed to Saudi, and then I deployed because we had met our original goal. Sure. And uh, and I deployed, and I took over what was called the Mechanized Infantry Weapons and Tactics Department. I had, really? I had 117 instructors and 79 interpreter translators wow. and trained 1,100 yeah. Saudis a day. And in, uh, in, uh, I think we had 16 or 17 training sites. No we had, I mean, we put them through entire basic training, uh, taught them marksmanship, taught them fire and maneuver, just like they went to basic sure. training here, except it took a lot longer there because you're going through an interpreter translator and uh, and all that kind of stuff. But when uh, we trained an entire mechanized infantry battalion. Wow. And, uh, and uh, the king and uh, the crown prince, <clears throat> was Abdullah. He was the crown prince. He was. It, this was the Saudi Arabian National Guard. It is not a weekend service like our National Guard type. Yeah, they're thing. there full time. time. This is. You had to be a purebred Bedouin tribesman. You had to be of certain one of the specific tribes, and your sole function in life was to guard to, the nation. No. The king and the royal family. Oh, is that right? Oh, <laughs> that, I stand corrected. And nobody yeah. messed with those guys, and they had to defend the nation too. Sure. When uh, when the Shiites out of Iran took over Mecca, right? One of our battalions were the ones that went in and shot them out. No kidding. Yeah, they were the ones that went in. Makes and you proud. Took them out. Anytime we hurt hurt those people. Uh, so, oh. uh, but anyway, I spent two years over there doing doing that training. All right, and then uh, then I came back, uh, and I finally I'm a kind of slow learner, and I took five <laughs> times for to figure out this guy's trying to kill me, uh, but and I I never did go to college. I got yeah. out of school, went to work, and did all that kind of stuff, and then later on went to the army, uh, and I said, you know, if I'm going to get out here and compete with these guys. I gotta have, I gotta have a degree. Get some education, and uh, and so I went back to the real estate office. I peddled real estate and went to school full time, and uh, I was doing that for a couple of years, and then I got another call from Clyde Sincere. <laughs> oh no! Because me and Clyde were in Saudi together. He was one of those that showed sure, up over yeah. there. 
And, uh, and Clyde again Clyde had been had at come, the FOB one. Yeah, and Clyde came back and took over what was called the support office here in Los Angeles, that supported all of the operation over in Saudi Arabia. They had got a second contract to train a logistical battalion. We were still training mechanized infantry battalions. Mm-hmm. It took 14 months to train one battalion. So, but then they got a second contract to train a logistical battalion because they didn't have any sure. logistics. And uh, so we needed to go out and recruit all of those kind of guys. So Clyde called me up and said, hey, we got to have somebody that knows what we do over there, has been over there, knows the environment, and can evaluate a person on what he's telling you about his resume. And so they put out the stuff. I rode an airplane five days a week. They'd put an ad in the paper uh, a week ahead of time and say, Mr. Mills will be at the Holiday Inn in Seattle, Washington on such and such a day. begin calling at eight o'clock in the morning to set an appointment and i would go and i would interview all day and get resumes and all that stuff pack them up drop them off in the fedex office catch a plane and go somewhere else (laughs) everywhere there was a post i'd be at you know seattle because everywhere there was a post and i would go to all the days you know when you're getting ready to retire they have those job fair type thing i'd show up at those things and that kind of stuff and it it, it was really kind of a uh, a fun deal i mean honestly I, I, oh, yeah. I was one of american airlines first million mile flyers oh I mean, my goodness i, I rode at i rode an airplane yeah every day yeah and uh uh when you'd go to these uh job fairs and stuff like that all the at these posts like at uh, fort hood or whatever sure. You know, everybody's looking for somebody, but it it's kind of like you're trying to fit these old army guys into a, a square peg into a round hole. Yeah, well, yeah. I'm there, and I got this sign that says, okay, you were a, a CW3 logistics guy. You can do these things, right? Yeah, you're going to do the same thing you've been doing for the last 25 years, except I'm going to pay you three times as much money. <laughs> People around all around the hall, you know, they'd be – Two people at that table and a couple of people here, and I'd have like 50 standing out here in my table. <laughs> they say, what are you doing? You know, you giving away dope or what? Oh, wow. <laughs> but uh, so, and we told them, we're going to pay you good money to do what you've been doing for the last 20, 25 years. Wow. And nobody else in the world needs that but us. And so my job, we had to recruit in uh, a two-month period of time. I had to recruit over 400 people. Whoa. And so I would send all the stuff to uh, to the headquarters, and they would go through it because we had to meet, because of the government, you had to go through some certain right. things. And I'd put totes on, I think this guy's good. Some of them I'd say, you do not, the first vetting. I'm not sure yeah. that this guy really wants to go you know he's he's asking too many of the wrong questions about you know what are the movies like there ain't no movies there, <laughs> there ain't no bowling alleys there's nothing there's work and sand and that's no booze it. that's right no booze <clears throat> no and, booze and maybe no broads <laughs> not, no not maybe absolutely you know. and uh so i said you know it's the toughest mental tour you're ever going to pull i can tell you that yeah because i've been there done that and uh, and you get it, paid good it, for it's it tough but you get paid good for it 
and their checks good every week. And so uh, I did that for a couple of years. And in addition, after we got the initial ones, we still had to, uh, they just kept me on as a recruiter because we had to keep filling jobs as contracts were ending right. over in Saudi Arabia. You Guys had to cycle. would be coming home. So we had to have more people to do all the infantry stuff. And that was even more true of the infantry guys because I need you to be an infantryman. Nobody else in this world (laughs) needs you to be an infantryman but but us. Yeah. And uh, so I would do that. Then the Saudi Arabian government and the on this contract, they agreed because the Saudis were paying for all of this. Right. This was not a, a taxpayer deal. The Saudis sure. were paying this on a on a contract to the Department of Army. Uh, they wanted to send some of their officers to the service schools, the infantry school, the armor school. Uh, uh, what's the one uh, down in? And all of that. And the commander staff college and that. Yeah. So... They said, okay. So, of course, these guys are coming over here. They don't know beans from nothing. So I become what was called a foreign liaison officer. Oh. <laughs> Me and uh, George Morton. Okay. Me and George sure. Morton. George Morton took care of everything uh, east of the Mississippi River. I took care of everything west of the Mississippi River. And so we had to visit these students once a month. And we had to go in, talk to the instructors, we had a letter from the Department of Defense that says we were authorized to see all of their personal records, all of their academic records, and everything else. We could talk to an instructor one-on-one and ask them about these people. Yeah, yeah. And we had to write a one-page report uh, for every student that we talked to that month, and it had to go back to Saudi Arabia, and Crown Prince Abdullah himself read it because he was commander of national guard wow and if that guy wasn't doing well brought him home sure i mean he, he they were very very serious about upgrading their status and upgrading yeah. their stuff so i did that for many 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 more years and then again tight-knit group a guy that was my executive officer <laughs> in saudi arabia right uh, came back, and he got into the business of funding. Uh, he was a financial guru, and he would put together private placement memorandums and go out and raise bunches of money to build independent television stations. <laughs> Just build the yeah, physical yeah. building, put it on, the, and then hire staff and run it and all that kind of stuff. And... Uh, so, so eventually get a, you get a job get selling a, advertising. I, no, I got a call from Jim. Yeah, and uh, he said they had had a big meeting on the first TV station they built was an absolute disaster. It was way over budget, three weeks off schedule, absolutely terrible. Everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Uh, so they were having a meeting with all the investors and all the investors were these, you know, doctors and lawyers and everything like that. Because back then the tax laws, you could get a four to one write off on these investments when they would, when they would lose money, you could, you could, (laughs) 
$25,000 investment would protect $100,000 worth of income. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, we had all the big money guys in there putting their money in this thing and didn't really care <laughs> if the thing made money for the first two or three years because yeah. there's going to be protecting stuff off. And uh, <clears throat> so these guys were a little upset that this thing was such so badly done. Yeah. So they were talking to uh, Jim, and uh, they said, man, you know, we need a guy that can just manage all of this stuff at the same time. And uh, Jim said, I know a guy can do that. <laughs> he said, you do? He said, I watched him do it every day in Saudi Arabia. He says, you know, all of the stuff to hear, this is minor stuff compared to what we had to do over there. Yeah. They, he said, you think he'd be interested in a job? He said, I don't know. I can give him a call. So Jim called me, and uh, and he flew me up to Murfreesboro, Tennessee, which uh, yeah, of course, just down the road a piece. Our, our, our station that was one of our first stations really? we built down there. Yeah, uh, and uh, so he and for the grand opening and all that kind of stuff, I met all the people, met the uh, met the operational side. And Jim says, I don't need to meet anybody on the money side. I need somebody on the operational side to make sure my money gets spent the way it's supposed to <laughs> and doesn't get wasted. He said, I need somebody to get this thing built. Yeah. And uh, so he told these guys. And uh, at the end of the meeting, uh, the chief of that whole side said, well, Jim Moore says, you're the man for the job, so you want it? And I became the chief. <laughs> So I built television stations: Syracuse, New York, Madison, Wisconsin. Oh my gosh! And yeah. uh, so I, I, just the whole general project manager to manage and build these television stations. Wow! And so I did that for about oh about ten years, I guess. <laughs> we, and then we kind of got, yeah. you know, run out of that. Got and saturated. Then, then we Tax got laws into, changed. We got into the small market. Uh, uh, network stations and that's where i wound up being a weatherman i wound up being a weatherman (laughs) we'll close up on we'll close on this story but you so first you were selling advertising and one day the weatherman had appendicitis couldn't show up at the station and they go oh my god what are we going to do for the weatherman and you said Hey, I know all about weather currents and that kind of stuff. I'm an amateur sailor. I know how to do all that. Plus, anybody can stand up and tap dance for four minutes. No big deal. You know, you just tell them a cold front's coming through. It's going to snow a little bit, and then it's going to get better. I mean, that's that's all you got to do. So at 6 o'clock that night, I did the weather, and I became the weatherman. (laughs) So did you launch a new career as a weatherman? (laughs) No, uh, I did that for about, oh, maybe – uh about nine more months and then all of this time these years while i'm building these television stations Mm -hmm. and one of the things that was a real problem with their first television station build was the guy that was supposed to be in charge uh i I think he lived here in nashville uh as a matter of fact but he did everything by the telephone and that kind of stuff, right. and he never went to the site. He was never there. I said, you know, you can't do this kind of stuff remotely. You got to be there. 
And uh, you got to make sure these guys show up, the tower crews, and you got to make sure all these people show up and they're doing the right things and get, getting those buildings built and getting the transmitter right. installed and all of that. And uh, so I basically was a ba- bachelor. I maintained a, a separate residence. I'd rent me a little hotel room, and uh, Jim was extremely uh, gracious to me. I got to go home every other weekend. He'd fly me home, didn't no matter where I was at. <clears throat> so that's why I had so many miles sure. there. And then, of course, the other thing <laughs> on the recruiting. <clears throat> but he'd fly me home every other weekend. And uh, Bobby, uh, we didn't have any children. And she was a career person. And she had moved up into upper management in her company. And she was traveling and doing their company was expanding. Yeah, And so... Uh, she was in the IP department, the data processing all department. And so as this company was expanding and buying more smaller businesses around the country, she was the one in and told them, okay, you're now part of XY Corporation. I don't care how you've done it for 24 years. Here's how you're going to do it. Here's how you're going to do it now and from now on. If you don't like that, there's the door. Have a good day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so she was traveling. I was traveling. Yeah. And so over time, we'd co- we'd talk him on the phone every couple of days or so. Yeah. And so when it would come up for our, the weekend home, I'd call her up. Where are you at? This? Now, I'm in New Orleans. And uh, where are you? Well, I'm, you know, over here in this place. Yeah. Uh, well, let's go up and see Jim and Naomi. Let's, let's meet in Nashville. Yeah. And we'll spend the weekend with them and see old friends, and then we'll go back. So we just, you know, uh, on Sunday, we'd meet in on uh, Friday night, spend the weekends with our friends or do whatever we were going to do at wherever we were going. Sunday afternoon, we'd go to the airport, kiss, and each one of us go our separate ways and see you in two weeks. (laughs) So we lived like that for several years. So after many, many years like that, I finally decided, you know, we really. She got off the road, and I, and I was down in Meridian at that TV station, and I, uh, <clears throat> I said, you know, I think I'm kind of tired of the road, yeah. So I resigned and said, I, it's time for me to go home. Sure. So I went home, and all of our nephews and nieces and her family and my family had a lottery going on how many how long we had last living together because <laughs> we hadn't lived together in 20 years right right <laughs> and we always said that's when we stayed married so long because yeah. we only lived together you know a third of the time <laughs> oh too so, funny so anyway i went home yeah and uh and i kind of went back into peddling real estate and finishing up my college and doing that kind of stuff and my friend that we had been building television stations together and that type of thing, he kind of went into semi-retirement and went down into the Cayman Islands and built him a nice retirement home and all that stuff. And he spent about a year down there. And then he got island fever. And then he came, uh, uh, there happened to be a guy down there that built one of those, uh, what's called insulating concrete form houses looks like a big styrofoam uh <laughs> tinker toy type yeah. thing you know and you stack them up and pour concrete in sure. the center and all that kind of stuff he got pretty fascinated by that so he went up and talked to the company up there and they were they were looking about getting the 
company was in Ontario, Canada, and uh, they were getting ready to expand and were needing expansion money. Yeah. Jim says, hey, that's what I do for a living. You want me to put together a memorandum <laughs> and go out here and raise how much you want? You want $5 million? You know, I'll raise yeah, you some yeah. money. So he did that. So in order for him to do that, they moved him up to the board of directors. And uh, he, he was an extremely intelligent, very uh, uh, innovative guy. Yeah. And so while he was there, he'd go to the board of directors meeting. And, and Jim was one of those guys that, just like me, I mean, he, he's got to be out in the field talking to these people. And so he'd be out talking to these guys on the job site, and they'd say, you know, if this block was like this, it would work a lot better. We'd like it. It'd, it'd be better if it could do this sure. and do that. So uh, he went to the uh, – at the next board meeting, he brought up the subject. You know, we really need to re-engineer and do some changes, and we could make this thing a lot better. Well, the, the chief of the thing says, we got 56% of the market. We don't have to change anything. Oh, so okay, you know, your money is coming. So that went on for a little while, and then Jim met a girl up in uh, Canada, married him. Her father married her. I'm sorry. Uh, Her father was a retired injection plastic. He owned an injection plastic (laughs) manufacturing company. So he Jim started talking to. John and he said, John, you know, could we take this plastic and could we do this and do that and you know we could make this new block and it would yeah. be a lot better. And, and John says, yeah, yeah, you could probably do that. He said, but Jim, you don't understand. I'm retired. And he said, sure, John. You know, next thing, name John's working eighty hours a week. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> so he developed a brand new block, got it patented. Set up a manufacturer, set up the manufacturing operation. Yeah. Then he called me and he said, Trav, I need an operations oh. man. <laughs> so I, I managed uh, seven manufacturing plants. I, I didn't no. actually manage the plant, I managed coordination with them uh, to manufacture our product, get it shipped yeah. and dis- to the distributors <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we were nationwide uh, and and uh, doing that, and I did that until I retired. So wow. we ran that company, and we took it from absolutely nothing to we were doing uh, like $2 million a month in sales. Wow. Well, we're kind of getting to that point where we're going to wrap up this sodcast here, Travis. All right. Was there, um, uh, before we uh, go to the final closing, was there any final thoughts that you might have or ruminations, cogitations? that uh, cross your mind after after covering your fascinating stories here? <laughs> no, uh, other than, you know, uh, it, as we get older, we go back and reflect on all the things that we've done, people that we've met and people that we've lost and, and uh, decisions that we made. And uh, you, you, you just absolutely have to be thankful that that we're blessed that uh, you see so many other people and I had a brother-in-law about a year ago that went through a very difficult uh, issue and and passed away from it 
but spent quite a bit of time at the VA hospital. And uh, you and I and a lot of us, when you go, if you if you start feeling that life is tough, just go out and visit the hospital, the, the VA, VA hospital. hospital one day. Oh, indeed. And you think, thank the Lord, I uh, I got everything works. It's okay. Yeah, I may have a little backache, may have a little of this, a little of that, but I am so so much better off. Uh, and that that you just appreciate life so much more and then i go back and i think i'm really grateful and really proud that i was able to serve america both as as a soldier and as in the business world to help production to help the economy give people jobs and that type thing that uh, you continue to do it after your visit at the Naval Hospital in Da Nang, will you see that young Marine yep. to help you turn I, your life around? I don't know that kid's name. Uh, nothing other than that 30 seconds that, you know, we were there in that situation together. But I think of him every day. Indeed. And I, and I, I wish him well. I hope he had uh, a good life. Uh, wow. Uh, Inspiration know, for you yes, in such a unique that, way. Because that could very easily have been me there. I mean, that, uh, I just think about that. And sure. Like, like I say, you often, anybody that's been through a near-death experience, I think, has, goes through those situations of why am I here and what is my purpose? Amen. And I have to do better today than I did yesterday. Well, I don't, I don't know many men that have been shot once or twice by an AK who was still around to talk about it, let alone somebody who was shot five times. <laughs> and that, for for that unique story in and of itself, um, we appreciate it. So we're at that point. Um, today we want to thank the men and women who, like Travis Mills, served our country. There are people that served our values, and and today we thank you, sir, and for today's service members, the Border Patrol, law enforcement, the first responders who are out there. And again, we thank Jocko Willing Productions, his team of Echo Charles and Carrie Helton, who make without them these productions wouldn't be possible. And we also mentioned the women and women from the Vietnam War. Today there are still 1,584 Americans from that Vietnam War that are listed as missing in action who did not make it home to their families and their loved ones. So we close with a final salute to them. Thank you, Travis. And again, Jocko Willink Productions. Airborne. Another amazing interview with one of our saw guys. Five times? Five. Amazing. Can you imagine? No. <laughs> no, I can't, I, can't, I can't even imagine. By the way, it's good to be back. It's been a long time. So I feel like, I feel like it's been forever. Indeed, it's been a long. Well, we we like done some recordings far away. I know. And traveling, the saw cast all over the country, North Carolina. Yeah, you Indeed. escaped me. You had to run away, so I couldn't be in him. Uh, but no, it's. It, I mean, obviously that night we've we've interviewed other people. And yeah, um, we had Larry Trimble. Yeah, and uh, of course John Peters. Now Doug Godshaw. Yep, and he was uh, saw cast number twenty and Pat, or nineteen. Yeah, and then Pat Watkins, Pat Watkins. which yeah, with episodes twenty three and twenty four. 
Yeah, and now it's like, you know, you're just hearing another point of view of that, of that night and how um, miserable, I mean, I won't say miserable, but how bad that was. Oh, just completely like wretched. It was just, it, yeah, I mean, uh, it's just the, how he survived, you know, and how every how anybody survived that, like how anybody who was there survived is is actually astronomical. The fact that you say it's, it's horrible, we lost 16, right? I mean, yeah. so we're lucky we didn't lose more. I mean, he took five shots and one to the head, one to the neck. And can you imagine? Still, still lived. It's just the fact he's lying there with that NVA standing over him with the a- hot AK-47 yeah. pointing at his head for the kill shot. Yeah. And then the other guys in the hooch distracted the NVA sapper long enough. Oh saved his God. life. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's beyond words. That's why we had to get him in. Yeah, it, I mean, it's absolutely beyond words how you, the, you know, what the human body does and how it copes oh. with it. Like you talked about going numb, um, you know. And, and just no how, pain. How, how you forget. Yeah, and I mean, I, I'm 100%. That's both mental and adrenaline just <laughs> pumping through your body going, you know, brain shutting down like, nope, you're not remembering this. And the second part is your adrenaline's just flowing. You forget everything. You know, yeah. you just forget the pain just press on and obviously it's i mean that's fight that's you know it's flight or fight right there i mean you're laying there it's either well at this point i'm just gonna go (laughs) (laughs) but i mean then for him to have a you know a life and obviously the life-changing experience uh being in that hospital and seeing that marine next to him when he comes to you and you know all of that and how that really helped shape his life and then him coming back and giving back to you know back to SOG and back to guys going there to train and all the stuff he established and all the uh, the work he put in with the re- the rest of the instructors, obviously, and the course they built with the 1-0 course. And, you know, yeah. how many lives did that save? You know, how many lives did their in-depth course save? And, you know, and the work they did with the, um, the eldest son, and, and working with that, by the way, that's a whole angle I never heard before. By the way, I could say, you know, I've died three times uh, conducting eldest son missions uh, on Prairie Fire, the uh, uh, the the video game. Oldest uh, Sog Prairie Fire. Yeah, because I keep, uh, you know, I don't have friends, so I typically just play. And you know, going out there like John Rambo doesn't work. <laughs> you, you you don't make it. I've it tried. It doesn't even work in Sog Prairie Fire, the video game. No, I've tried indeed. going on my own in it. Yeah, I, I, I just yeah, I, I can't. I could never get there. But I always try the Eldest Son mission. I can never get there. <laughs> That's a tough one for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, his career. I think everything. If you look at everything he did forward. It all goes back to that night. Yeah. Everything goes back to that night. Um, his outlook, and you can see it and you can feel it when he talks. Uh, being in the same room, again, as always, it's such a humbling experience to be around you guys and to listen to you guys talk. And he obviously did a, a phenomenal job. That was a uh, that was <sighs> a great interview and so in-depth. And the fact that he remembers all those details and, and, and the facts and the smells and the, the just everything about that even even specifically that night yeah how much he remembers from that night is actually kind of shocking because typically traumatic experiences like that are forgotten well like when i reread all this and because we um i learned about him after we did the book on the ground Mm -hmm. and so that we had chapters in there about that night yeah and so i learned and and in talking to him particularly i had like one really long conversation that 
where he wrote things that we that were published for um, the newsletter for the Sentinel, which is for Special Forces mm-hmm. Association Chapter Seventy Eight newsletter, and he printed that story, his version of it, and uh, we talked about it, and like be shot five times, and then at the hooch they said, "Well, you're not going to die. Just patch you up." Yeah. Then he goes to the dispensary. You're not going to die. Do guard duty. Yeah. Oh, by the way, he rides shotgun in the ambulance, and then he's at the naval hospital. Same thing. You're not going to die. Go over here. Yeah, so lie in a gurney rig for a few hours. Yeah, we'll get to you. We'll get. We'll get there. <laughs> but that, I mean, that also goes to show you how well orchestrated that attack was. Oh yeah. How it was not just you know like when I <clears throat> like the first time I heard about that attack, and even now it's like I thought the attack was just on that base obviously it was not yeah that was obviously not just a they weren't just targeting you guys like that's what i always thought i just thought it was just they were coming after you well they did and they hit the other bases like they hit the marines right and they hit the sea company but But that's a story you don't know about though those are the ones that don't come out right because it's it's just part of it's part of war, but yeah, nobody uh, nobody talked about it. Yeah, uh, gosh, last year I talked to somebody about the C Company attack, and they hit them, but it didn't last very long. All right, and the Marines were the same thing, because they had the Marines on the other mountain at Marble mm-hmm. Mountain across from Larry. Yep, because that's what woke Larry up and alerted them first was that attack before they hit. Because they hit, uh, the, they hit the Marines with the, the it was mortars, wasn't it? I, I thought that was a mortar attack. His, I thought that's what when we interviewed Larry, I thought I thought that's what he said. It was a, it was a mortar attack. I have to I could go be back wrong. and listen to episode five. Yeah, because that would be good um, to go back now and kind of compare. Yeah, especially if you're a listener and you're listening to all these. Listen to the ones with Pat Watkins twenty three twenty four. Yeah. Listen to this one and then listen to Larry Trimble's five. Right. I think Larry's so, for number five. Yeah. So and listen to those, and now you oh and you get that full you you get the full breakdown of that night of august 23rd yeah 1968 oh i know it's just i mean when we heard about it it was just incredible and we were up at fob1 safe (laughs) (laughs) lucky you yeah we were getting ready to go on a target but this kind of delayed things for a day or two well then doug went there right after that right well no he went to the when the frenchman came in country was october so he got there two months after this happened four months it was August, August 23rd. He came in October of 68. Yeah, so two months after August, September, October. Yeah, so two months later, he came into country. I'm sorry. I'm never yeah. as good at math. <laughs> That's all right. No big deal. So <laughs> you don't have to be. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you can hire people for that. You just, you know. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> but you, My yeah, wife's like really he gets there and sees, you know, the burns on. on oh, yeah. Like, all, I mean, all that stuff is, is horrible to see. and But that's all facts, like, that. I think the normal population they don't want to hear about and that's not stuff i mean yeah. you look at the, you look at the current landscape of, of what's going on in the world right and they're showing that stuff on the news now yeah and it's like this is actually going in american homes and i look at that and say eh, i don't think yeah. kids need to really watch this we can you know yeah. but it, at the same point it's like people don't understand the they don't understand that part of war sure they only understand what the media wants you to see but they don't understand the reality of it and uh this interview is really good in him expressing that, I think oh, that was, I it really sheds light on just being on the wrong side of the AK forty-seven. <laughs> I just, I just like his stubbornness. So you shot me. <laughs> I'm coming after you. Yeah, I'm like, pissed. really? <laughs> I'm pissed. Um, now I'm really pissed. I'm an American. You shot me. A shot third me time. again. 
How many times are you gonna shoot me? <laughs> uh, because yeah. he's an officer, I didn't want to say anything about maybe being the officer. That, maybe a sergeant would have handled it a little differently. I think that might have had something to do. He was, he was trying to fill out. He was trying to figure out the risk assessment yeah. instead of actually figuring out how do I. <laughs> this guy's trying to kill me. <laughs> I would like to say that I, you know I think the enlisted would have handled it a little differently, but maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> I mean, just to be shot five times and even be able to talk about it. And still, yeah. And just to sit, you're face down in the sand looking at the guy's foot. Yep. And, but, you're th- and you're thinking about the movie. Yeah. Good God. But you look at it, that's another, uh, so another great leader, right? So you look at uh, him, you look at, you know, that's two that I know of, and I'm sure you know more because you got him and you got Dick Thompson. I mean, you, oh. it, and you, you hear these stories and you're just like, you know, wow, where are these officers? <laughs> well, yeah, and, and, and Dick Thompson, we have to say, that if, if you listen to Jocko Podcast, yeah. 204-205-206, yep. outstanding, another SOG warrior, an officer, yeah. whose stories, uh, after I heard episode 205, I called Dick, because we were together at Fubai and then later at the CCN, I said, Dick, I feel like a wimp. Yeah, <laughs> after listening to your two hundred five, who doesn't feel like a wimp? Yeah, I, I don't think there's, I don't think there's even too many guys that were in SOG that mm. would say, no, I had it harder. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, that's true. Like what he did and his, you know, even his volunt, I guess you could say, voluntold um, <laughs> yeah. adventure on the helicopter because he didn't really, he didn't really volunteer. He didn't really no. prepare for that. He, <laughs> helicopter pilot just decided to take him you know yeah. so yeah big uh big kudos to him yeah and then uh, the frenchman interview with uh with jocko is jocko podcast number yep. 186 and that's Phenomenal just a classic interview. yeah well it's my favorite i'm biased yeah but we were there and uh as i i think with jocko he talked about that image yeah. that he saw when he came into uh ccn he might have but definitely he talked about the food thing about yeah. how much food, you know. And, oh, yeah. And we talked about today that I brought, you know, three days worth of food. And I just remember, I when he said that, I just remember the Frenchman in that interview saying, <laughs> yeah, I brought four quarts of water for four days. No yeah. tablets, no anything else because I needed bullets. I'm not bringing any. No, water was weight and food is weight. I, you know, whatever I had the smallest, lightest I could go, I went with. Sure. Um, and then obviously, unfortunately, the next year. Oh, uh, Not even that. It was like we taped, two we weeks. taped on July 9th. Then uh, Jocko posted a week later, which would be he posted on the 16th. Yeah. And then we lost him on, uh, we lost Doug on the 24th. Yeah. Over heat. Well, it was a combination of things. I've talked was, to a okay. sister sister, but heat exhaustion. Yeah. He had a scorpion bite the week previous. And then um, he had no. Um, Oh, he what the heck was it? But he he lost his uh, one of his organs, his vital okay. organs. It'll come back to me. Yeah. <laughs> he lost him when he was twelve years old. Is it kidney? No. No. It was uh oh god. I have to go back and look at the book yeah. now. But the It was uh, a combination of all that. Yeah. All combined yeah. that led to his demise. I remember it was sepsis kicked in. Because I remember it was heat. I remember heat was part of it and when I watched that interview or listened to that interview and and it was after I think it was right after that had happened and uh and then I read about him, you know, passing and they said that it was, you know, part of it was due to heat. Yeah. Uh, from what I read. And I was like, 
I was just like, man, I just, I just listened to him talk about how nobody dropped with a heat cat. And I was like, how? Yeah. You know, it's just ironic or how, you know, it's just messed up. It's like there wasn't, you know, all the missions he ran and all the stuff you guys did. And he's bringing four quarts of water for four days. <laughs> and then to have that, you know, like, yeah, yeah we never had a heat cat. Nobody ever yeah. went down. Nobody had heat injuries. And, you know, we didn't have that then. No. And then that to be one of the contributing factors. Oh, really, yeah. Really kind of sucks. But yeah. Absolutely. Great person. Horrible to lose another, you know, uh, a hero, definitely, of, uh, well, of SOG. Yeah, well, that's why we, um, I guess we're at that point where we thank Jocko Willing Productions for making all this possible. It's through his company that we have SOGcast, and today we uh, reached a milestone, which was um, SOGcast number 25. Glad to be part of it. Indeed. Well, thank you for that. And then, as always, we thank Jocko Willing Productions, his team, with Echo Charles and Carrie Helton. And as always, we thank our service members who are protecting our country today, the Border Patrol, the first responders, law enforcement. We have many challenges confronting our country today, but we have a country that is better than none other in the world. And we say God bless America. Thank you. Until the next podcast. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.